Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Joe Burrow and the LSU Tigers took home the NCAA College Championship Trophy and set a host of records in their 42-25 victory over the Clemson Tigers and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas where on this day in 1875, the temperature fell to 8 degrees in Little Rock. Thank you for joining us for Episode 44 of Clear and Convincing. We're joined by Michael Amo from Orange County, New York, home of the United States Military Academy at West Point, and Dr. Brian Langlois from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where the Millersville Normal School was founded in 1855. From the early 19th century, normal schools were created to train high school graduates to become teachers. Tonight, we're continuing our conversation about horse racing with Mr. Amo and Dr. Langlois, including controversies in the media and efforts to ensure that horses are taken care of after their careers on the racetrack are over. We'll also talk about the work Mr. Amo and Dr. Langlois are doing in their communities to enrich the lives of all creatures, great and small. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And before we move on, I have to mark uh, today, or yet on Sunday, Tusk 4, the mascot with the uh, University of Arkansas, passed away. Um, we, of course, LSU community sends out our condolences to... Tusk uh, caretakers and vets and students at University of Arkansas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, y'all win a national championship and our mascot passes away. That's how it works here in Arkansas. Oh, my goodness. Well, Tusk 5 came, you know, has stepped into his role. Yeah, true. So you're, you're good. It was uh, I don't know if Ms. Ramo and Dr. Langlois are familiar. When Mike Six, the mascot for LSU, which has the only live tiger living on a college campus 
in the United States, when he passed away, um, Arkansas posted a banner on Tusk's travel trailer when we played Arkansas that year. And it was really, you know, a nice gesture. Mascots, you know, stick together. There you go. I don't know much about that at Michael Amo. I'm, I'm a boilermaker from Purdue, so. That's right, yes. We talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do have to say, though, the, the, uh, the horrible Clemson Tiger mascot outfit has stolen the Internet from LSU. But uh, good evening, Dr. Langwa. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Glad I could make it. Had a couple of late cases uh, this evening, but was able to get them all wrapped up by the time uh, this rolled around. And uh, yeah, I was I wasn't aware of that with uh, the mascot either. Now I'm going to have to go and search online to uh, see this wonderful tiger mascot. (laughs) Yes, he's a uh, he lives on the LSU campus. We have Mike Seven. Uh, and uh, he has a beautiful habitat right near the the Tiger Stadium. So he's on Facebook and uh, Twitter, and when you uh, are back on social media, you can check him out there. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to go and um, look at. I think I remember reading a couple of stories about. Uh... Um, him in in the past and stuff like that. Uh, one of them, I think, had some sort of eye issue that a veterinary ophthalmologist was working on at some point, but um, I can't completely remember. You know, I'd have to go back and reread on that a little bit. Yeah, I I don't recall that Mike Six had a, a cancer. Oh, maybe that was maybe that's what I'm thinking of. And he actually went to the Human Cancer Center at Mary Bird Perkins. For radiation treatment. That must have been an interesting, uh, interesting day for for the techs there. I know when where I went to vet school up in uh, Prince Edward Island uh, back in 2004, 2005. Um, the human hospital had the only uh, MRI machine on the island. So yeah, there were sometimes after mm-hmm. hours where we would take a couple of the dogs or cats that might need an MRI into. Uh, uh, into the human hospital through the side door so this way we could go ahead and, and get them scanned. So that was always a fun time for the techs because it gave them something different to look at. Right. Yeah, and it was it was great because it was a collaboration between the veterinary school at LSU for Mike and the Mary Bird Perkins Cancer uh, oncologist and, and radiologist, you know, putting together a program to treat this tiger and it was a great a great again it gave them some great data as well yeah and uh, I mean they've been looking at animal models for a lot of different things especially as far as human cancers there's a there's a study I, I don't know if it was just recently completed or it's close to completion out at um, actually at the University of Pennsylvania vet school and the medical school at the same time looking at a, a type of bone cancer that dogs are prone to and and kids as well and they've actually started developing um, uh, cancer vaccines um, to individual types of bone tumors based on these studies that so far have shown some pretty good promise, both in, in the dogs and the, and the kids that they're treating. So it's a, it's a fascinating area to really research and get into. That is. That is really fascinating. So 
All right. Well, we're going to um, – another first thing, I want to congratulate Joe Nevels. Uh, he was a guest on the show prior to the Breeders' Cup uh, at the end of 2019, toward the end of 2019. He has won his first Eclipse Award for feature commentary writing for his article regarding the closure of a, a Michigan racetrack. And uh, we just want to congratulate Joe on his first ever Eclipse, Eclipse Award. Absolutely. Yeah, was that... No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just and saying it, that's it's... amazing. Yeah. It is. And he is. He's a very talented writer. Oh, he is. And he's um, married to that, a very that... talented writer. And I know that particular piece he had been working on for at least a couple of years, um, uh, I believe, in, in, you know, just following kind of the, the closure of that track and stuff like that. And, uh, no, it was a really, really well-done piece. Um, uh, you know, him and, you know, I mean, now both him and his wife, Natalie, can, you know, both claim they have Eclipse Awards. So, um, and they're both, oh, you know, they're both phenomenal writers. So it's... Uh, it, is, it is. She has a little bit of an edge because not only does she write in her own voice, but she writes in the voice of her horse, Jitterbug. Yep. <laughs> so, and that article is Biting the Dust, A Long Goodbye to Mount Pleasant Meadows. And you can find it on Pollock Report. So, all right. Well, let's get into continuing our, our discussion um, we had talked about some of the the medical issues that can affect horses and uh, you know the fractures as well as medical conditions. Uh, now we're going to talk about drugs and racing and talk about some of the drugs that they use and the legitimate therapeutic uses and why some of them are are being sought to be banned. And we'll start off with Lasix. Yeah, LASIK seems to obviously be the the hot button topic um, for everybody, and 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 basically to, to kind of just give a brief, you know, synopsis. Any horse that's exercising, and this is not just thoroughbreds; it happens in standard breds and quarter horses, and and and, and a lot of horses. They can be prone to a condition that has a big scientific name called exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. Um, which basically just means that there is some bleeding that goes on in the in kind of in the microscopic levels of the lung when you get way way back in the lung at the level of what they call an alveolus where that's where the actual air exchange happens into the blood and for reasons they're still trying to exactly pinpoint um, there's an increase in pressure in the vessels in, in, in the lungs in those areas so under extreme exertion they can actually rupture a little bit and the horse can be subject to bleeding into those, um, you know, lung spaces and things like that. And so it can affect performance. Um, and over time, uh, with multiple bleeding episodes, it actually can lead to a little bit of scarring of the lung, uh, which can lead to some longer-term complications. So they've tried, you know, for years, decades. And, and this bleeding issue goes back to the foundation of the breed. Uh, you know, you, you, can, you can read stories of... Um, uh, you know, horses that raced in the 17 and 1800s that were, were heavy bleeders. And, um, you know, there's there's multiple kind of levels of bleeding that we look at. They range it on a scale of usually one to four. And 
what most people you know are familiar with when they think of the term bleeding is a horse kind of bleeding out through their nostrils or, or having blood flowing from their nostrils after a race. But a lot mm-hmm. of the bleeding that we see now in racehorses is more um, on the on the level of seeing it via uh, what we call a scope or an endoscope where we can actually go in through the nostril of the horse and look down into their trachea or windpipe and actually see evidence of bleeding or not. Um, so where Lasix kind of came into the fold, uh, you know, probably in the you know, 60s, 70s, it just started to be known and then really took off more in the 80s. Um, it's, it's a diuretic. A, a lot of people use it uh, themselves for heart conditions um, to, you know, remove excess fluid off the lungs. Um, a lot of people sometimes refer to them as water pills. Uh, it does make you pee quite a bit. And so what the drug does in horses is it does definitely have what we call a diuretic effect. So it does, um, you know, pull a lot of water off the system to make the kidneys, you know, filter out a lot more urine. So they are urinating a lot, but it also drops a little bit of the blood pressure in those vessels in the lungs. So it has been scientifically proven to work in a way that reduces, um, or in some cases eliminates, um, this exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. It doesn't necessarily work in every case, and some horses will also do what we call bleed-through Lasix, which means that even with Lasix being administered, they still are going to show some evidence of bleeding. Um, Where Lasix kind of comes into the forefold as far as racing and and being kind of a hot-button topic is the science, at least as far as we can see in, um, uh, you know, looking at the studies, there's kind of two things with Lasix. One, it does work. I mean, it does reduce bleeding. The science has shown that, and the studies have shown that time and time again. But what we've also seen with it, and what most researchers will agree with, is there appears to be a performance-enhancing effect with it as well. Um, horses that are given Lasix, you know, perform better, run faster, run, you know, a couple of lengths ahead of where they normally would run, if they didn't have Lasix, and there's been a lot of talk as far as why is that, what you know, what causes it, and what they've sort of settled on now, although nobody has pinpointed it scientifically for sure, is that a horse will lose through urine, urinating before a race uh, maybe 20, 30 pounds of, of water weight, um, you know, which is a lot, and that's weight that they're not carrying around for the race. So they technically are a little bit lighter. And so they believe that that actually leads to their performance enhancement. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about, well, Lasix can help what they call mask other drugs because it dilutes out their urine so these drugs wouldn't be detected. That might have been the case maybe you know 20 years ago, but now the testing has become so specific that really the masking effect of Lasix doesn't exist anymore. Um, that's something that's really not been shown to be true um, you know, over the last five or ten years. Uh, but it still does have that performance-enhancing effect. Um, there's, there's debate as to how many horses truly need it or not. And what we're seeing in the U.S. is that almost every horse now runs on Lasix. And really the drug was designed only for horses that you know, were shown to be true bleeders, and that's when they were supposed to get it. But now that they're seeing, showing that this drug may have a little bit of a, a preventative effect as well, you know, what some people are saying is, well, then every horse should get it as a preventative measure. Um, I, I think science and the vets are conflicted on that, depending on who you talk to. Um, the other big argument that comes up in the, in the face of Lasix is, um, well, the rest of the world, really with the exception of Canada and, um, and South America, the rest of the world runs 
race day medication free. So there's no Lasix allowed on, on race day. You can't even have traces of it in the system. So usually it's, you, you know, you can't have a, any Lasix in your system for at least three to five days uh, pre-race. Um, and they seem to do fine. Their breakdown rates are less. Their injury rates are less. And, and you know, they're, they're, they don't seem to have the same kind of bleeding issue that we do. Um, so that's kind of like where the crux of the Lasix argument is right now. And um, uh, it's... It, it's almost like what I would call kind of like an unwinnable battle. You know, there are two camps that are firmly entrenched. There's the pro-Lasix and the anti-Lasix, and they're really not going to, to budge. And, you know, that's kind mm-hmm. of where we stand right now, and it's it's hard to get the needle moved in any way, shape, or form, and uh, it's hard to see where it's going to go. Hey, Brian, Michael right. Amo here. Just just go a little bit into the diagnosis, can diagnostic connection. It seems to me that when I started out racing, thinking about racing, there was always a, a solid workup and diagnosis of bleeding before you got Lasix. That doesn't seem to most fans to be the kind of thing that we see. It's almost uh, you get Lasix, um, period. Uh, is the diagnostic... Yeah, 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 no, and you raise a good point. It's, um, you know, in a lot of cases, and this this is also brought up a lot of times in Europe as well uh, and, and other places, that when a horse bleeds... There, it's not just the kind of thing of where, oh, well, he's a bleeder. Okay, we're going to put him on Lasix. They don't, they don't try to get to the root cause of why he's bleeding right, or, right, or, right. or, or, or doing things like that. And, and, and some of that is just, you know, an effect of. Uh, I think it's, it's a multifactorial thing, but uh, unfortunately, on a lot of backsides, it's, you know, the vets are under pressure to, to keep their clientele. So, you know, some trainers will say he's a bleeder. The vet may say, you know, well, we need to look at this, figure out why he's doing it, or you know, maybe changing things. And some some trainers will just say, you know what, if you're not going to give him a Lasix or give him a shot, I'm just going to find another vet that will. And uh, exactly. So so there's kind of an apathy there as far as you know getting to the bottom of what's going on with the horse. And and to me, like when when I've looked at it, I think you know that the argument is always brought up. Well, in Europe, they seem to be able to do this and they have better rules. To me, a lot of it, you have to look at the housing arrangements and the training arrangements between the two. Um, you know, in Europe and, and, and a lot of other places around the world, they don't train necessarily on the track. They train in training yards. They have a lot more open spaces. They train a lot differently. Their housing is a lot different. Whereas, you know, in the U.S., in most cases, horses are, are kept in a, in a box, a box stall for 23, 22 hours a day. It's very dusty. They're, they don't... <laughs> get the chance to graze and move as they normally would. So all of these things kind of contribute. Um, and I think that's something that has to be, you know, really well looked at. But the rules potentially have to change on that, too, because if you look at some of the rules over in Europe, if a horse bleeds, there there's a, re, there's a mandatory downtime for them. Um, right. and, and they have to be treated a certain way, and they have to be in, investigated. And in some cases, it's, uh, you know, they will try to do what they can, and, and they'll try to run them again. But if a horse proves to be a chronic bleeder, basically they're retired at that point. They're, they're not persevered with. Some will come over to the U.S., um, I mean, if they're higher caliber horses that are prone to bleeding because, you know, they know that they can use Lasix over here. But in, in a lot of cases, it's they're, they're not, you know, they don't look at it the same way we do as just throwing a Band-Aid on it with Lasix and, and not getting to, result, to the real crux of the problem. I can, I can remember, you know, my day, the, the classical Calumet, you know, they believe you send them back to the farm for, for a rest for a long period of time. Uh, and I think that you, you mentioned that as a, sometimes a European model, you know, but I think that used to be where racing was many, many decades ago. 
uh, we've changed. Why do you think we've changed? you have any idea, Brian? Um, I, I think just the to me, I, I think a lot of it just has to do with the the, the ownership dynamic. Well, I, I think there's two things. The, yeah. the ownership dynamic in, in racing has changed. It, you know, it used to be the families that, that really raced and they – they really, you know, looked after their horses, and it, they they bred their horses to race. Um, so that meant if that if they had to give them a little bit of time on the farm, and and back then there was a little bit more of a seasonality to racing. So it was, right. you know, they they would race maybe late spring through early fall, and then they would get three or four months off down on the farm, and you know that would allow mm-hmm. them to recharge. In in today's world, you know, the, the type of owner is different. They're looking for that immediate return on investment. They're not really looking at the long term you know, viability of it, they they know that they put so much money into it and they want to get that money back plus some, and that causes trainers sometimes to push a horse probably more than they should be um, in, in some cases. And it's just, uh, you know, and for some of these smaller, uh, you know, or lower-level horses, um, just for, for their owners and, and trainers to survive, they need to be running every two or three weeks, and they don't have the, the luxury of that downtime. So it's... Uh, um, you know, I think that's part of it. I think also some of it is also, I think, and, and this goes sort of leads to a, a slightly different topic, but nowadays the breeders kind of run the way racing is done. It's, you know, you're, you're racing to breed instead of breeding to race. So um, what people want nowadays is a very precocious, fast, young horse that can maybe run at two and a little bit three and then be retired off for a stud deal somewhere and you know, you sacrifice soundness when you when you start breeding for those characteristics, and and I think that that has kind of affected it too. Nobody really wants to. Nobody really sees the long term investment strategy, you know, to, so to speak, as compared to the to the um, you know the short term gain that everybody seems to be wanting. Especially now with with major partnership groups coming together and, and right, things like right. that, it's uh, they're, they're looking yeah. for that quick return. Sure, I think I think you're right. And I mean, I've been a when you get the partnership, something I'm beginning to look at and think about a little bit is that I'm a great was a great fan. I am a fan of of Cot Campbell, and and how he brought to us the you know the the partnership model in the late '60s, and and it was really a good intention model of of um, and Thorofan gave Cot Campbell a, a, one of our awards one year, and he came and spoke. And, you know, the thing is that we, he, you know, he, he was trying to bring a whole, he was trying to add to the fan base. And I think what we've seen now, if you look at the number of fan partner, partnerships out there, um, a lot of people are getting into it without really knowing what they're getting into it and what the cost is. And as, as you said, Brian, you know, they want a quick return. You know, I, I, I uh, am, I'm, I'm a partnership in New York and, the 20 or so people are all involved and, and to read some of the comments that they argue about regularly, you know, talks about how seasoned of a, of an owner some of them really are. Uh, they just want to see the horse run. They want to see the horse win. Um, and there's lots of pressure to do that. And I think it's because they're, they probably don't have the budget to sustain ownership, but they're in it. Yeah. And, and, and actually have... what's interesting about Cot Campbell. Um, and I remember this, uh, Right back when he was, you know, starting with the partnerships and Dogwood and stuff, um, he had a horse, Summer Squall, that was running in the 1990 Triple Crown. And just on the topic of Lasix, it was interesting because back then New York still did not allow Lasix on race day. And so Summer Squall had finished second to Unbridled in the Derby, won the Preakness, and um, because of – and he was known to be a bleeder. And because of the rule in New York, uh, 
you know, uh, with no Lasix, uh, Campbell said he will not be running in the Belmont. And I remember him being interviewed about it on ABC, and he specific, specifically said, you know, it's etched in stone. We weren't one in the Belmont. And it was interesting at that time he said, you know, I think New York is out of step and they should really allow Lasix and things like that. And then you kind of come full circle 40 years later or 30 years later mm-hmm. or whatever. Yep. And he's kind of changed his well, changed his thought on it, and, and you know said that you know we should be looking at this differently, and you know was more of a favor of the no race day LASIK. So people's minds can be changed on it, um, you know, b- based on what they know now versus what they knew then. But no, I, I do agree with, with what you're saying, Mike. I think a lot of people get into it and they don't they don't have the the full grasp of of really really what's involved in ownership, and also the full grasp of just getting a horse to the winter circle is, is, is an achievement in itself. And it's not something that, you know, repeatedly happens a lot of times for, for even the, 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 the really well-known trainers out there. Yeah. And my, right. you know, my bucket list, my big bucket list is I, one of our horses in our partnership won at Saratoga and my, so I, I my horse naturally won and I went into the winter circle and <laughs> that's a thing that you always remember. I was in the winter circle at Saratoga. Yep. Oh, now who was that? Mr. A horse. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a, a four-year-old uh, Freud gelding named Analysis, and he, he okay. was a Russian. Yeah, really good. We had him, and and uh, he was a, a wonderful horse and, and big, seventeen hands, big guy, and he'd run, you know, a mile and a sixteenth mile, and I think this was a mile and a sixteenth on the turf. He was a turf horse, like from. And and the great story is we we were there and he he broke out of the gate last and which he never did and we thought oh my God there's something wrong right and we're watching he's following the field all the way down the backside at Saratoga and we're just about ready to throw our binoculars away and and just let it go and only as they came around the top of the stretch he pulled four wide and ran the ran the field down the wind by a neck. <laughs> I think and just I was that on a weekend on a Saturday or a Sunday? I think it was yeah. Yeah, I think it was. We were all there. We were I there think I may have yeah. seen that one. Yeah, it was. It was. A, it was a because you know he was such a big horse. His stride once he got his body once he got striding, he was taking one stride to toot everybody else. Essentially, not exactly mm-hmm. close. You know, he was just motoring down the track with these big strides. You know, um, it, it was great. It was so exciting to see him win it. Win it. You know, we didn't. We, never, we thought he was going to finish last, only to find out he won. All right, yeah, because I remember. Those are the good days. You know, those are the, the days com- you remember. I remember the commentators talking about how he broke last, and you know what happened, and then, wow, he won the race. Everybody, <laughs> I think everybody was surprised. We were, we really were. It was, it was a big surprise. But anyway, it was a, it was a good surprise, you know. Right. And he's right. And you know, we 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 went over and when he won in, when he won he finished he won in Belmont one time for us and. So we won, and we have to go over to the the spit barn uh, to have the all the, the urine and blood test, you know. And he, I'm forgetting, he he was just he was one of his first ones, and he comes out of the barn, on his toes, jumping along like, "Can I do that again? Can I do that again? It was so fun. Can I do that again?" <laughs> and everybody was just so excited to see him come out. And he comes up to to Nikki, my wife, and he and, and she's standing there, and she used to be an exercise rider, and he he just comes up and he puts his head on her shoulder. You know, like, hi, Mom. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, sweet. So great to see him. You know, those are fun days at the racetrack that people have to, almost more fun than going to the window and collecting, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so sweet. 
Just throw a story in. That's like what that. I love about American Pharaoh. He's that sweet, that sweet yep. nature. Anyway, just to right. add a little color commentary to our our discussion. <laughs> I I'm going to keep his his analysis still racing. No, no, he's actually he's uh, retired, um, and he's now being trained to do hunter jump jumping down in. Oh, Aiken. great! Yeah, we got him on. Uh, South Carolina. Yeah, he's down there, and he's got a new owner, and they're training him and and trying to get him get him in the new new career. Perfect. We get pictures that of him every wonderful. once in a while. Yeah, we keep up with him because uh, uh, the managing partner, the partnership owns the owns a broodmare, and so you know, so we, it's sort of like family. We have photo family photos of all these things. Mhm. Your equine grandchild. There you go. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) That is really cool. My my great grandfather had ponies, and you know everyone was like his kids. Yeah. And then uh, he had a a retired broodmare, and I wish to this day that I could find out who she really was, but I didn't know she'd have a tattoo under her lip. To look, to get the number, and you know, look her yep. up and find out who she was. So. Where she is? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Well, I, she, she was sold in the fifties, in the late fifties. We think she might have been, uh, not related, related to Citation through Bull Lee, mm. because her sire was a bull, a Bull Lee colt. Hmm. But it's all guessing. <laughs> so, and memories. And uh, memories. Yeah, and memories. She was the sweetest, I mean, sweetest, sweetest mare I've ever seen. In fact, my only real experience with a mare. So these, you know, these people like Jitterbug and Glorious Alliance that are Nightmares. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> yeah, mares so, can be um, temperamental. I guess is the the best opinionated. Way to it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Especially, so, I'm told chestnut mares are uh, worse than than pretty much any other mare. But although uh, Glorious Alliance and Jitterbug are both bay. Yep. Um, Jitterbug's a dark bay. And she has an inner chestnut mare. I have no doubt she has an inner chestnut mare. <laughs> so, all right. Um, now, what about Butte? So Butte um, is actually probably the one that you know everybody focuses on the Lasix, and 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 for yeah, for a decent reason. But Butte is the one. When people start looking at, um, you know, the, the real catastrophic breakdowns and, and, and the issues surrounding that, um, that people should be looking at a lot more. I, I will say one thing, just backtracking to Lasix for one second. I know a lot of people are saying that Lasix is, is one of the reasons for, you know, the increase in breakdowns in horses and things. And there, there really has been no scientific evidence to say that. Um, there's nothing scientifically study-wise that has ever linked Lasix usage to... Um, 
to an increase in breakdowns or an increase in fragility as far as bone structure and things like that. It's, it, they're always researching these things, but there's really no talk of that with Lasix. Now with Butte, the, the story is a little bit different. So Butte basically is, is what's known as a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So it's, if you would look at sort of an equivalent, it's sort of the equivalent of, say, Aleve or Advil for, for a human or, or something along those lines. So it is it has a, a very important part in uh, veterinary medicine. It's It's been used for decades. Um, so it is designed basically to help relieve pain and reduce inflammation um, uh, in horses that have minor injuries, minor ailments, things like that. Sometimes it's used to try to help reduce a fever as well in a horse, not quite as much as it used to be. But um, the big issue surrounding it is the anti-inflammatory effects. And so uh, what has kind of come to light recently and what people have started focusing on was um, it, it used to be in some racing jurisdictions in the U.S. that you were allowed to race on Butte, um, you know, have, have Butte uh, in their system on race day. And, uh, you know, the, the theory behind it was sort of the same theory of going with, um, you know, a human thing, like if you're getting ready to play minor sports or whatever or go for a run and you have some minor aches or pains or something, normally you would take it beforehand to hopefully, you know, reduce that a little bit and just make your run or, or whatever a little bit easier. And the, mm -hmm. the same theory was kind of being applied to racehorses where, you know, they're going to have minor aches and bruises and things like that. So why not try to take that inflammation away before they race so this way they're not feeling it? Um, well, that's all kind of well and good, but what was happening was, uh, you know, a very important part of the whole pre-race um, schedule and parade and all that is there are veterinarians that are stationed in the paddock and on the track, and they're watching these horses um, as they're warming up. They check them in the mornings as well, looking for any signs of, you know, uh, pain or discomfort or them being off and not sound, because obviously you don't want a horse like that running, and so the, the vet would scratch them. Well, in the case of Butte, what it was doing was it was kind of preventing them from being able to see those areas of inflammation or the horse limping a little bit or, or being a little lame or, or off. And so to the vet, the horse looked perfectly sound, whereas in reality, there was something, you know, percolating there or going on that might be minor in most cases. But, um, you know, as we kind of talked about the, the last time, a lot of the issues are down in that fetlock or ankle joint. And so once a horse is under full stride, and especially if they're slightly fatigued, um, normally if, they're, if the inflammatory response is there, they're going to, you know, realize that and pull up a little bit, and they're not going to, you know, stride mm -hmm. out as much. But if that is blocked, they can actually overexert themselves and, and do some catastrophic damage. So what, um, for the longest time, there was no real statistical significant um, correlation between the two mate. It was, it was anecdotal evidence. A lot of vets felt that way, but there was really no science to prove it. And finally, um, a study that's going to be published sometime in 2020 in the Journal of the Veterinary Medical Association uh, was actually a study that for the first time did a scientific correlation to show that it, there was a statistically significant um, increase in catastrophic and severe injuries in racehorses that did have butte in their system. Um, and this was the first time a study had ever put those two together scientifically to where it could be proven. The the one issue and the one caveat that, you know, I tell everybody with the study is that it was done on horses that raced in South America where they were basically they're still allowed to run on Butte on race day. So mm -hmm. we I'm waiting for the for the full study to come out 
the numbers to see exactly what um, you know amounts they found, but they still felt that it was enough of a statistical correlation that really the recommendation going forward by the people that look look at this and study it um, and people that have looked at the equine injury database and, and pull stuff off of that is that really to, to give the best chance for the horse to be properly evaluated by a vet prior to a race is for there to be no butte detectable in their system. Like it just has to be completely out of their system. So now a lot of a lot of racing jurisdictions have gone to you, you cannot give butte more than um, 48 hours before a race. I think you're going to see a push to push that even further back to maybe 72 or 96 hours um, to to allow the vets to get a better you know handle on what is is going on with the horses. And you know what a lot of people say is is pretty much true. If a horse is sore, um, you know they really shouldn't be racing. You should, and it it goes to the whole diagnostic thing that we were talking about before, where instead of finding out what the exact problem is and trying to go at it, diagnosing the issue and then treating that. A lot of people use it just as, you know, you or I would use it for like a sprained ankle or, or a muscle pull or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the, the trainers will just say, well, I just, I, I need to get him ready for this race. He needs to be good for this race. So let's just give him butte and, you know, make him feel a little sure. better. And that's, it, it, it's having detrimental effects on both the, 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 race-ready health of the horse, but I think a lot of ways, too, when, when these things come out, it's having a huge issue with public perception, and, you know, that, sure. you know, they're, they're trying to hide injuries to get these horses to basically, you know, race one more time, and it, 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 it's the, you know, with they, some vets have termed it, you know, the just one more race syndrome, you know, I just want to get one more mm-hmm, race out mm-hmm. of them, and thing like that. Well, you know, and, Brian, and, just to be the racing historian, and I go back to the, I'm not, I, I can remember reading and hearing and having people tell me without turning them in on the radio who, who they are. Uh, you know, the days in the in the 60s, 50s, and 60s, probably you stood a horse in ice bucket for four or five hours before the race, uh, and froze his legs dead solid yep. so he could run without any pain. Uh, that you know, people would talk about that. I mean, that was not a secret. That's what they did outside the barn. Mm-hmm. And did, if, does that have the same – that they were trying to do the same thing, reduce inflammation, uh, give no feeling, reduce the feeling, and pain in the leg. But now we, yeah, then, I, then I think it would have – Along comes um, the medication. Yeah, you know, I, I think it would have a, a similar effect. Um, That's all right. I don't think it's uh, – the problem is I, it's probably not as repeatable in every horse, so every horse would be right, a little bit I different. Do. But I, I do agree. know there was – I think uh, Frank Whiteley was was famous for it. Um, you know, he would sit there and and not even for for race days, but just in general. I mean, he would be hosing his horse's legs for three four hours, you know, every day. And uh, I, I think they used to make the joke like his barn was known as like Lake Whiteley or something like that because of uh, <laughs> because of all the you know the the constant you know uh, hosing of the legs he was doing. But it, it you know it, it it that certainly is something else that's that's sometimes done, and it's it, it all goes to you know again. I think what a lot of people don't realize, too, is, like, we talk about, um, uh, you know, all of these things coming up and trying to run horses drug-free and, and all this stuff. And, you know, people look back to, you know, the 50s, the 60s, 70s. I, I mean, trainers were doing stuff back then, too. It's, you know, obviously the detection methods were nowhere near what they were today. But, exactly. you know, they, they all weren't running just on hay oats and water back then either. It was, you know, anybody mm. was trying to get an edge. The problem nowadays is more so that, you know, you're getting so sophisticated with some of these medications that, Absolutely. you know, you're, you're yeah. causing a lot more harm than good, whereas, 
you know, back then. Yeah, there's a lot more that goes into it as far as the breed was much sturdier back then. But, um, uh, but yeah, no, it's, you know, they, they will try to do that. You know, they'll do shockwave therapy to try to deaden pain a little bit too. So it, it, it's really, it's designed to try to get the horse not to feel that inflammation and pain. One, so that they don't show it when a, when a vet is examining them. But two, you know, the, some of the training thought is they'll run better because they're not, they're not hurting. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I can remember reading about stuff they did in the seventies and even eighties and and every time the testing improved a lot some trainers would find a way around the testing. Yeah, and that's and that's probably similar you know, and that's the the biggest thing, and I think that's both from a scientific standpoint and a public perception standpoint, the chemists are always going to be one step ahead of the testers. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the the labs can only test for a compound they know about, so and that they can mm-hmm. create a test for. And now things have gotten so sophisticated where, um, you know, on a chemistry level, you can alter a single peptide or protein chain in a, in a drug. The drug will have the same exact effect as the performance enhancing, you know, regular version, but it won't be detectable. Um, so, you know, they, they, they still can use it. Um, so that's, you know, one thing, I, I think that's why what, what's really going to have to happen in the sport is you're actually going to have to see a little bit of a, a pull away from, you know, the, the post-race testing and really put a lot more emphasis on out of competition testing, um, mm-hmm. where they just go to the barns and they, you know, you, you try to catch these guys if they are giving certain substances. You try to catch them when they're not, you know, when they're either in the middle of training or they're, you know, in between races, something like that. Because a lot mm-hmm. of these drugs now they can microdose so that it has an effect, but it'll clear the system by the time, you know, that they, that they're racing. So post race test. Yeah. So that's really where like the the current thinking and, and push really is for is for a lot more out of competition testing and and I, I haven't you know just as a vet and you know looking at the science of it I agree with it I mean that's you, you hear them talk all the time about you know well only I can't remember exactly what they te- but it's like well less than one percent of all horses tested you know come back positive for something it's like that's true and that's great but you know you're only testing for so many things and you know if they want to beat the test they're going to where you have to get them is in the out of competition testing. I think I thought right. it was interesting. Is it, I think it's Rio Doso Downs that the the, the, the uh, tracking was in New Mexico. Have I got that right? Yep. Uh, I was I was out at the Arizona program uh, last year, and I was talking. I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name. I was talking to. He was one of. The, I think he might have been a new general manager, but he said he was talking about how he'd gotten uh, uh, trained dogs to smell the drugs that he didn't want on the on site. And the drug, the dogs would just walk the shed row and walk at the gate, and walk around. And if they smelled it, they could they go in the barn and and find a drug. Uh, I thought, well, that, that's interesting. I haven't heard of that used before. Have you have you heard of that? Anybody else heard of that? Um, I yeah, I, I no. they were the ones that kind of piloted. I know New Jersey now has has their <laughs> own. I don't know if it's one or two, but I know New, the racing commission in New Jersey has has brought on a dog as well. Um, okay. To, to do those types of things, yeah, it's, it's to both, you know, kind of, but also people that are just kind of walking in, you know, the the trainers or the stable help that are coming to the gate, have them, you know, uh, checked as well, because usually that's how the stuff right. comes in. Right. Comes um, in, that's right. But it's, that's right. It's, it's another great way to, you know, and, and something that you can't really dispute in in any way. You know, it's it's not something you think of, and the the, the real crux of it is is really both to try to catch people that are cheating, but 
also as a deterrent mechanism. Um, you know, exactly. I, I think the one problem, at least with a lot of the programs that I've seen without a competition testing right now, is I think they're focusing too much on either a specific barn or they're, you know, looking at trends like, oh, well, this trainer all of a sudden has jumped up, you know, five percentage points and is winning at a much higher clip, so let's let's target him or her. To me, I think the way you do it where you, re- where you really have an effect is literally you're pulling tests every day and not all racing jurisdictions are doing that, where even if it's three to five horses a day, you know, you just have somebody that's walking through the, the, the barn, one of the investigators with, with a tech or a vet, and says, okay, it's going to mm-hmm. be that horse, that horse, and that horse today. And mm-hmm. and they just, you know, just, and that will start to really, you know, if, if trainers really know that it's totally random and there's no way of knowing who's going to, you know, get pulled that time, I, you know, I, I think it does have a, a potential deterrent effect. Um on it, but if, yeah, if I mean, it's you a case of where you're you going to start targeting things a little more, I don't think it has the same effect because, you know, you, you can you can get around that a little bit better. Sure, sure, sure. Right. No, I think it's you know you're talking about we could use random for statistical significance. We could use, the, you know, more random number generation. Even people walking around going that one, that one, that one. So people are smart enough to pick up the pattern and and uh, what people are doing after a while. Humans develop patterns and they can even get away. I think your random number generator might be a good way to do it as well. Yeah, no, that's true. Mm-hmm. I think I think Pennsylvania is starting to go to that that system of of just randomly, you know, picking picking numbers. And I don't know, I can't remember if they correlate to stall numbers or um, or specific horse Tattoo ID numbers, numbers or, or whatever. So yeah, I, yeah, I know that they're starting to look either. at that a little more. And what it's about? Always amazing. It's always amazing. Well, almost to like baseline testing. Yeah. When you okay. ship in or you ship out, do a test. Well, yeah, and that, and that goes to too. I mean, you know, one of the other areas of of testing, and it comes into you know when you have horses that are leaving the grounds or coming in, it's uh, you have to be very thorough in as ensuring the horses that are truly coming in are the ones you know, that they're claiming are coming in. So it, it goes to better horse identification too, but, um, and that's improving at tracks around the country as well. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, there, there's so many different ways to do it. What, what it hamstrings a lot of, I think, jurisdictions right now is just the, the cost of it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously it's an added expense that, that they have to take on. And um, so a lot of times it's it's partly the horsemen's groups that are funding it, partly you know the purse structures or whatever they're giving up a little bit of purse money for it. But to me, I think you actually, if you really want to do it right, maybe you take some of the money away from post race testing, um, you know, and put it towards out of competition testing. But to me, at the same time, like the more I've thought about it, what I would be interesting to see, which I and which I find interesting, is that in most cases you're really only testing in, in races anyway maybe the first two finishers and on occasion what they call a special where the stewards will just say, I want that horse tested for whatever reason. I never understood why, and Michael, you might know this if, if it happens in New York or other jurisdictions, um, you know, really with handicappers and bettors, in most cases, betting on the first four finishers in almost every race if there's enough horses. I never understood why those four, those first four are automatically tested in every race. I, I, I'd be curious if you got more positives, if that would happen if you – Increased your your testing number, um, especially some of the lower level tracks. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think it was you know you talk about when you have, when you have gambling and money and all the things that racing has, uh, you you uh, you realize that there's always going to be somebody trying to 
to get an advantage. You referred to that earlier. Um, I think that's true. You know, one of the things I'm, and this is probably not really on topic, but it kind of always makes me scratch my head. I, my training as a hospital administrator, and I spent 28 years in hospital administration. And, you know, and, and sometimes I watch around and look around and watch how, how how racetracks are run and how medications are distributed and all the controls and the way things are done and the way they test. I just scratch my head and, and, and say, you know, there are better ways, guys, <laughs> you know, but uh, I don't know enough about horse racing to give them examples, uh, you know, but uh, it, it just seems to me that, that uh, the racing industry has maybe always thought that it was just okay to do it the way we've always done it. And the times there are changing. We're going to be forced to uh, to adhere to things like when you start using studies that are doing random testing and, I mean, correlative studies for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it, 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 we're getting more sophisticated every, every day. And that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. Right. I hope I didn't ramble up, but that's good. Oh no, not at all. And people's attitudes, how we treat animals is changed so much in the last yep. 15, 20, 25 years. Sure, 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 sure. The way we look well, at animals. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things, you know, I remember having Dr. Scalia, I think it was her name, she had, runs a, or did run the database, uh, the equine injury database. And when they first set that up, I mean, this year, I know you got it. We're going to talk about jurisdictions later on if we get to it. But, you know, the the, the equine injury database is voluntary. How crazy is that? Right. You know, I, I, I'm willing to, <laughs> I guess if you don't volunteer the horse, you might be hiding something, don't you think? Uh, you know, you don't, and it is. I mean, some tracks don't have to participate. They can determine what they want to call in, when, how. They, uh, it, uh, unless it's changed, and I have, you know, in the last few months, I think it's still that way. Yeah, no, it, it still is a voluntary system. Um, I think you do have some tracks that report to it, but don't make their numbers public on it. So mm-hmm. that creates kind of like another level. Um, but what what I've heard, and and which I and I don't agree with this at all. But what I've heard from a lot of tracks is, well, if we publish our numbers or we contribute to it, it the numbers are going to be misinterpreted, and the public's not going to yeah. <laughs> look at them the right way. And the kind of thing is like, well, then that's your job to educate them onto what it is. You're you're not going to sway every single person, and there's going to be groups that are going to say, see, no matter what, horses are dying. But if if you take the time to really say, this is what this means, this is you know, what we've right. seen, I agree. It, things like that, you will reach a good number of them. It's just they don't seem to want to put that effort in to, to really try. I, you know, I think it's funny, Lisa, we're going to get another topic on the list, but people don't want to say it because they're thinking they don't want to give the information out because they think people will interpret it. Well, Nick, how, yeah. how did that work out for the California Horse Racing Board? Right, you know, exactly. How'd that work out for you guys? <laughs> Yeah, and that is it's true, and they they forget we are in the age of demands for transparency in everything uh, and instant information. Sure, sure. You know, one of the things I want to mention, Brian mentioned, is because he's a perfect example, and it's so great to, to listen to somebody this knowledgeable talk to us as as fans. But oftentimes I think sometimes when you hear this comment about people won't interpret it correctly, they they perceive that most people other than people who work in racing are dumb. 
They don't mm-hmm. understand it. And and what I look at is when I look at Thorofan, I'll take my group, Thorofan. You know, members like Brian with with a, with, a, with his a doctorate in veterinary medicine uh, is a fan. You know, and you know what I mean. He can't understand it if he looks at the data. Or we have a, a, a member of our of our group that uh, a PhD pharmacist. I bet that person could 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 uh, could make make the eyes glaze over of most of most trainers that think they understand medication. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and you, you know, and you get people. We we have guys that are, one of our board members is a, like a high end Wall Street banker. You know, you think he doesn't mm-hmm. have much numbers. You know, right. sometimes I think we, we, we kind of assume racing, I think, is guilty of assuming that the people other than the people in their industry know nothing. Uh, that's my assumption sometimes. And you get that feeling that, oh, you don't know. And I think the, the fans and the fan, the fan, the people who watch racing know, know an awful lot. Right. Well, no, I agree. I, 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 I think agree. sometimes what I've come to, 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 to say in response to that, because I've been in some groups, you know, and stuff, and when you talk to some of the you know, the horsemen's groups or some of the insiders, it's like, well, you just, you know, you, you don't understand it from our yeah. perspective. And to me, it's like, well, then explain it. Like, yeah. what, what what am I not, don't just say you don't understand, what, what am I not getting when it comes to, and sometimes they make a legitimate point that you don't think of, but other times it's just, it's kind of like their cover for, oh, well, you know, you, you're not on. You're not involved in the industry, so you just don't understand it. It's like, That's right. well, That's right. the, the problem is now, especially with the push for transparency and and freedom of information requests and things like that, is they're going to get the information and then they're going to interpret it the way they want to, and that's what people are going to believe because they're going to put it out there. So it's, you know, you you might as well try to be ahead of the curve a little bit on it and, when you and say put stuff out first before you allow the extremist groups to just say, see, this is what this means. When nine times out of ten, they're not correct. And social media just exacerbates that. Mm-hmm. Correct. You know, take, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, you know, I don't get it sometimes when somebody says, "Well, you won't understand." That that I, I it's sort of a pet peeve I have. Mm-hmm. They help me understand because yeah, help you, me understand. if somebody were talking to you about a bad experience with the hospital administration for their loved one, you would be able to say, "Well, this is why they made this decision." And you would probably be inclined to help them understand sure, sure. why things were the way they were. You know, I don't understand sure. why this hospital discharged my loved one, you know, when they did. And something, mm-hmm. you know, catastrophic happened. But you would, mm-hmm. like I said, be one to try and explain, well, this is where, you know, you're – this is what happened. This is what mm-hmm. they may have been thinking. I think everybody wants mm-hmm. to know what's in the minds of others much more than we used to. Mm-hmm. So we not only want to know what someone did, but we we demand to know why they did it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, we I need think people coming, that are willing to take that time. To at least try, even if they don't, mm-hmm. un, you know, the, if they're not in a place where they're going to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but to use, as, 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 as Brian was saying, to, to use your the blanket, well, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. It, it's right. Just, I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense to me in, in, in this day of access to all the data you ever want and, and social media and, 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 and you know. 
fans that probably know much. I mean, I joke and I keep I keep going over this. I, one of our really longtime fans fans is like a PhD and 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 uh, is an engineer and 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 mm-hmm. built roads in New York. And you tell me that he doesn't understand the concept of of of, of the race course and how it's built and what goes on and how you mean he, you couldn't sit down and explain it to him. You bet you could. You know, you'd understand it right. perfectly. You know, you don't. And he might say, oh, be no, able that's... to offer you. Some he advice. might be able to offer some guidance on surfaces yeah. and subsurfaces. Yeah. yeah. And you know how well, you grade and how you you know those things because that's what good. he did for precisely, Lisa. Precisely. After yeah. after thirty years being an engineer and retiring, you think he might have thought learned something, right? <laughs> At <laughs> I mean, least a little and, bit. And you. And you <laughs> You think they want to share it, you know, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so I, we got a long ways to go, but I think we're going in that in the right direction. I hope. Right, I I agree. I think we I think we hopefully will continue having people coming in who are of this this mindset of let's educate the public mm-hmm. to to help them understand. You know, yes, there are therapeutic uses and there are uh, instances of misuse, but you can't confuse the two. Right. And you have and to you know, stop I, the misuse, know, but not the therapeutic. That's right. And, it, you know, it's a great, excuse me, a great opportunity for a public service announcement here for Brian. Because on Therofan's weekly web uh, newsletter, and, and we go to, we also use Facebook and stuff, some of the some of the programs Brian does, uh, some of the videos are just absolutely phenomenal educational tools for fans. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I just you know, compliment. I mean, you can't compliment Brian enough, and I've told him that, so it's not like I'm I'm surprising him on the air, you know, on the tele- on the radio show. But it, you know, fans need to go and learn this stuff. And, and I tell you, jump jump on the Thorough Fan newsletter and. And, and follow and follow Brian. You'll you'll be you'll pick up a lot and know a lot more about the sport that you're a fan of. I totally agree. Sorry to embarrass you, Brian. I totally agree. Oh, that's right. No, I mean I I really appreciate that. I mean you know that's that's good to hear. And you know it, it's 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 hard sometimes for me when I do them because you know I try to break any I I don't try to put any bias on it. So you know what I've always said is that this is the this is what the science says, or this is what the information says, and then people, you know, use the information to make your own decision. And, you know, it, it's hard sometimes because I do have my own thoughts on certain things and and, and know them. But, um, but yeah, really, that's that's the goal of it is just try to put stuff in a little bit of an easier to understand way and make it, you know, it, it's again, it's it's people need to, like I said, people need to realize, and you said it too. There there is a therapeutic use for a lot of these medications. We're not saying. You know, no horse should ever be medicated with anything ever. Exactly. It's just um, mm-hmm. you need to, you know, you need to tailor it properly and and, and take care of take care of the horse first and foremost. And um, but no, I, I'm you know I'm glad to hear that and hope you know you know the feedback continues to be positive with it. And you know that's that's kind of what I'm just trying to get at is just you know give the basic education in a way that that's easy for people to understand. And you know then they're free to to, to make their own judgment and, and determination with it. But uh, you know, hopefully it, it provides a middle-of-the-road type of analysis on, on kind of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Your, yeah, your objectivity, in fact, that was one of the things that really impressed me most was that you were totally objective. There was no hint one way or the other. 
of whatever opinions you may or may not have had. It was just relaying the information and teaching people about the anatomy of the leg and understanding why sometimes they can be helped and sometimes nothing can be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, and, you know, like I said, that's what I've tried to, and that's, you know, I, I've even said that to people too. It's like, you know, nobody wants to see a horse break down. Nobody wants to see a horse suffer that way. But at the same time, you know, we try to be objective and say, look, you're never going to get to that zero number. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and if that zero number is where your starting point is it, it, and you're not going to budge from that, it, it's, it's a non-starter of, a, of even trying to, to talk about something because, you know, you're just not going to get there. Weird, freak things are going to happen in racing just like they happen in any other sport. It's, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if no death was ever acceptable in any sport, you wouldn't have sports. I mean, it's, it, they just right. wouldn't exist. Um, so it's, you know, we, like I said, I just try to look at it from, and I, I mean, I've learned a lot in, in the last couple of years of, you know, uh, being part of, you know, every commission meeting and trying to, to go there and, and, and get information from them and also voice my concerns. And, you know, some of the thoughts I've had have changed slightly over the last couple of years, just based on stuff that I'm learning as well. So it's, you know, it, it, there has to be, you know, give on both sides and the ability to learn on both sides, and I think that's how you kind of move forward. And on some of these drug issues, it's, again, like I said, you've, you've got those two firmly entrenched camps, and they're just not going to budge, and that makes it it makes it makes harder, I think, for the industry in general, but it also makes it harder for the public because it's, you know, you, you, you're, you're creating sides when you may not necessarily need to create sides on something. Well, I think it's Correct. interesting uh... – what is it? Uh, is it ThoroughCap? I think that's a website out there from Arkansas, actually. Uh, Chris Robbins or something does it. I, I, I think I remember, but I think he did a piece. Uh, if I think he did a piece on breeding a bit a bit ago, but I thought it was interesting, and, and I didn't think about it this way for, until he made me kind of dig deeper into my head. Is that if you've got mil- if you've got thousands and thousands of dollars tied up in a in a stud or a broodmare? that has been thrown horses that are running well on synthetic surface or running well, I mean, on grass or running well on dirt. The last thing you want to see is a change to synthetic or a horse has been running well on Lasix or, or, or ran well. Uh, another, you know, you know, the last thing you want to see is have it banned because all of a sudden the question becomes, is, is your horse that you invested in going to be a good sire? You know, and, and you know, it's sort of getting at your business if somebody changes uh, things on you. So I think there's a lot of opposition to change that is very, very personal, if not selfish. Um, you know, it, it, you know, don't change that because it, it could really affect the way I do business. Because after Correct. all, I mean, and I we talked, maybe... yeah, go ahead. And we, and we had talked about that on the last show that, you know, they're uh, oftentimes they're underestimating their horses mm-hmm. because American Pharaoh ran on dirt. Uh, he may have run on the turf one time. And he's been throwing Colts and Phillies that can run on anything, in mm-hmm. anything, slop, fast, slow, medium. You know, they just they just run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's had some that are successful in Europe. Mm-hmm. So don't underestimate your horse. Yeah, no, you're right. 
that's right. But you know, you know, I think it's you know, I don't I don't want to sound like it, it's not racing. It's wrong to to make money in a business because I don't think that way at all. My look, my life is not that way. But I think uh, sometimes I think Tim Ritvo said it one time during the heated Santa Anita thing. You know, I think I've quoted him before. That's you know, sort of saying. I'll paraphrase, I got that right in front of me, but I haven't got it right in front of me. But he said, you know, maybe the part of the problem is we're treating this more like a business and not enough like a sport. Mm-hmm. And boy, that makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? Because, uh, you know, it, it's got to be a business to survive, but is there a, is there a tipping point? Is there a tipping Correct. point? Where it's it's uh, it, it cast it has to be fifty one percent sport and forty nine percent business or something like that. Once you cross the line, I don't know what that is. You you really could start finding yourself making uh, some dangerous decisions. Right, and and sometimes obstinance you don't get your way, you get the the last thing you wanted. <laughs> Well, that's, when I mean, you know, and that's, it, that's kind of where, you know, everybody – and it's where you get these kind of camps that are entrenched with the Horse Racing Integrity Act, too, whereas, you know, there's the groups that are vehemently opposed to it, the groups that are in supportive to it. But because you have this constant infighting and nobody really coming together, that legislation just keeps – and I don't think you'll see it past this session, but I, I, it might have a good chance next session um, – you know, eventually the government is going to step in and do it. And, you know, they're probably not going to be happy with the end result uh, when mm-hmm. that happens. But, you know, it's the funny thing I find about the the Integrity Act is it, it kind of focuses on, on, on the medication issue. But that's a very it, – it's a very narrow focus on what it's looking at. I mean, it's it, – everybody's – I think some people are looking at this as like the cure to raising ills is to get this – Bill passed, and it's 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 a it's a small step, but it's not going to address a lot of the major issues that are going on right now in the racing world. Right, hundred. Yeah, I think I think people see it as 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 you know. I think it's the magic elixir. Uh, not that it's not a problem, but not that it won't solve a major problem. But it's not going to solve everything. You're right, Brian. I think that's good, but who knows? And it's, it's the U.S. I mean, government, I, so it's definitely not going to happen overnight. And I have, I mean, Paul Tonka represents Saratoga Springs, and I know him. I've met him a few times, uh, Senator, you know, the, you know and, and I think it's, you know, he's good meeting. He's well-meeting, but, um, you know, it's not easy uh, to get legislation passed. you got to get enough people to vote. Uh, I, uh, you may know this about my background, but I'm a county legislator in New York and uh, have been for a number of years. And when I first got into it, I asked one of the seasoned guys, there's a 21 members in our legislature, and I asked one of the seasoned legislators, what do I really need to know to be a good legislator? And I'm thinking, there's 21 of us, what do I really need to know? And he looked with the straightest face and he said, can you count to 11? And, and I had to think a minute, and I said, I guess that's all you need to do to pass a bill. You need 11 votes out of 21, you got a bill. You know, mm-hmm. but you got to count to 11, and you got to get those 11 votes. You know, and in the case of 439 in the Assembly, in the House of Representatives, can you count to, you know, 200, what, 221 or something? You need to get over the line. Uh, that's a lot of people. You have to line up to, to go along with the bill to have it happen. That's why it takes so long. Correct. And I, it seems like it's that keeps kind of dying in committee or languishing yep. in committee. Yeah, I know they are going to have a hearing on it. I think it's January 28th. Um, 
that same subcommittee or whatever that it was last time that it's still in is going to be holding another hearing on it. Um, I'm curious to see if it is a better hearing this time with more, um, you know, true experts, because it, it seemed like the last time it was basically they had representatives of like the jockey club and a couple of people there that were for it. And then the horsemen's groups that were against it, um, there was no vet that was that was uh, asked to testify, which I just blew my mind. Um, and, you know, or or some other experts in the field to really delve into it. So there's been no list of who's actually going to testify at the hearing, but it, it has been scheduled again to at least be heard in, in in a committee hearing. So it'll be interesting to see what what comes of it, and if they have a better panel this time than than just kind of the you know oh, wow, the, yeah. the, the the back and forth. Oh, we want it. No, it's not good. Yes, it is good. No, it's not. You know, that that's really all that was was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the next topic we have, and we've, we've kind of uh, kind of alluded to it a little earlier, justify. Uh, after the Santa Anita Derby, scopolamine was found in his urine at a high level. The California Racing Horse Racing Board um, did not disqualify him, did additional testing. I think Bob Baffert requested testing. And eventually they said they declared that it was Jensen weed contamination, which is very common in California. Environment, they said it was envirom- yeah, environmental. Yeah. Environmental contamination. Right. Um, and that was in April of 2018. Well, of course, Time, New York Times doesn't break the story until September of 2019. Mhm. Something along the I get I looked at the papers. I was just yep. And or September October. So well, if there was a problem, why are you sitting on it for eighteen months? It's my first question. The New York Times. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you know a lot of anonymous sources. I think there were, mm-hmm. but um. Tim Layden wrote a great article that kind of filled in some of the gaps left by the journalism of the New York Times. Uh, For example, that it wasn't just Justify, it was several other horses in a few different barns. And there was a high level in the urine but the blood levels were low, and they didn't find atropine, mm-hmm. which with administered medication, you would find atropine as well as That's I believe. Right, yeah. That was my understanding. Um, and all they found was scopolamine. And my first question to Dr. Langwa is, is there any therapeutic or performance-enhancing use for scopolamine alone in a racehorse? There is. Um, from the therapeutic standpoint, um, there's a synthetic form of it, and the name escapes me off the top of my head. But there, there's a similar form of it that is used to help horses that are undergoing episodes of colic. So it kind of helps reduce a little bit of uh, what they call spasmodic colic, um, where the, the, the intestines may spasm a little bit. 
as far as like the the performance enhancing side that's i think battle back and forth on this you know in theory it can be used as a little bit of a bronchodilator um and and can improve breathing improve heart rate a little bit so the, the the thinking is um you know if you get a high enough dose it can be a performance enhancing drug but the the counter to that is you have to you walk a very fine line with that because you can get neurologic uh, and toxic side effects if you go too high with the drug. So, um, you know, uh, scopolamine and a lot of the the it comes in Jimson weed is just one of the 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 plants that it's found in multiple plants around the world. And there, I mean, there are, are kids that get high on the tea that you can make out of you know certain scopolamine uh, plants mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's there definitely is a neurotropic effect. So that's where the argument of well, is it really a performance enhancer? You know, it, it, it kind of goes back and forth. I mean, it's it's not one of the first things I think that most people would pull for, um, for performance enhancing, um, you know, and, and certainly not one of the more common things used. Now, maybe there is some performance enhancing effect to it, and out in California, people might think I can get away with it easier because it's easier to argue the environmental contamination side of it mm-hmm. with, with the Jimson weed that often gets wrapped up into the straw or hay. Um, so that might be an issue. I think what, the thing I think that really, you know, struck people with the whole justify situation was a couple of things. Um, one was that his values and his urine were, were so much higher, you know, I think it was like three or four times at least higher than any other horse that had been, you know, found to have contamination at that same mm-hmm. time frame. So that raised some eyebrows. Um, and then the other is, is is just the lack of transparency from the from the horse racing board as to how they dealt with it. Um, you know what what you kind of said was true, and what and what you know Tim Laden wrote was true. And for people that don't realize or, or know this, when a horse is found to have a comeback positive on a post race test for something, the trainer has the right to ask for what's known as a split sample. So basically, mm-hmm. when a horse is, has urine and blood pulled, um, you know, post-race if they win or, or they're asked to go to the test barn and submit samples, um, enough urine and, and blood is taken so that part of it is sent off to be tested, another part of it is held and usually frozen, and that, that sample is what's known as a split sample. So the trainer can request that that sample be sent to another laboratory for for the same exact testing to see if the if the results match, and there are times mm-hmm. where that split sample does not come back positive, and so you know then the 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 board really has no case. But um, in this case, it w- it was the kind of thing of where supposedly anyway the the rules around scopolamine and the class of drug it was and the type of violation and penalties everything was like in the rule changing phase right when this happened. Um, and so that's why, you know, he was not technically disqualified right away and, and had the purse money stripped. Um, I think a lot of it still looks very, very shady in, in the eyes of the public because mm-hmm. they haven't, they, they, the board really still hasn't come out and given like a, a, a true answer to this as to, you know, why they went about it this way, why this particular case seemed to be handled different than a whole bunch of other cases that were happening right around the same time. And, um, and it had, you know, I, I mean, huge implications. If, if technically, if he is disqualified for that, and even if that's appealed, he loses, you know, potentially those those Derby qualifying points, and he, he's you know, ineligible for the Derby. So, um, and thereby mm-hmm. the Triple Crown after that. So, uh, I think in in the Justify case, 
it, it comes down to again uh, public perception and public trust and what a lot of people look at is the favoritism towards certain horsemen and certain trainers you know or, like, a, a lot of people bring up if it wasn't bob baffert that trained the horse would the results have been the same right you know when i think it when I'm, i think about it right what i think about music comment uh, is it is it you know go ahead I'll, I'll cut you off go ahead say it oh no 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 you you go ahead and say no, no i think yeah i think the point is one of the things i think we're missing is that if and this maybe my bias as having a fan organization is i don't I, I, we hear about you know we see the papers filed by mick ruiz ruiz today saying i want my four hundred thousand dollars back you know i you know i i own both the oro and he came in second and I should have won the I should have got the purse money, and, and and that's one. And then we have all the, the discussion that Brian's talking about about the chemistry and the change of rules, which was all sort of in down, you know in the weeds of the racing industry and racing business. Mm-hmm. But what about the guy that had had a thousand dollars to bet on Boltiero to win the race? No one's talking about what he lost, or the fans that lost right. had had got knocked out of an exacta because they, you know. Or trifecta. Nobody seems to care about the fan in this one, do they? I haven't heard anybody say anything about it. Uh, and I think that's a message we have to have to listen to. If we want to have integrity in racing, and we're going to depend on the fans as the customers, if you will, something like this is is a, a front to, to to fandom, if you will. Um, and and, and it, notwithstanding anything we want to talk about, about rules, drugs, uh you know, super trainers, any of that politics, but but it's right. uh, it's, it's it's an affront to the fan. You, people lost money on that race, and no one's talking about it. Yeah, right. I, and I, I think. think you... Go ahead, Brian. Okay, go ahead. No, sorry, you can go ahead. I was I was going to say, um, from you know, from my standpoint and my experience, it's the appearance of impropriety mm-hmm. that causes the most trouble. In any endeavor, but also one the first thing that I recognize is the horse racing board owes something to the public and to the fans, but also to the trainers and the horsemen and the jockeys and horses and owners. Due process. You're right. If you have multiple horses across multiple barns, with the same test results, and I don't think, you know, I, I don't think justifies it. He, the author singles him out, but from some of the more objective things that I read, it was the same. It was high urine, mm-hmm. and then confirmatory testing still showed it, but in lower levels. Right. Well, Lisa, Lisa, you said, and thank you for sending all. I know you, Brian got it too, but I got it. The, 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 the petitions filed recently by Mick Rees against the board, and his sole uh-huh. case, if I got it right, and you're better, probably better than I, but his, the main case his lawyers are raising, is they did not follow the rule that was in place at that seven at six forty-five in the evening that night, when the race ended. The rule was so clear. And and Brian's right. They were thinking of changing it. They thought it was done. And, uh, racing, you know, Association of Racing Commissioners International uh, had already adjusted theirs, and so there was lots going on. But but the right. bottom line was the rule was that at the time that race ended. And I don't right. I, that's going to be yeah. interesting. 
that that is going to be interesting because again from what i read he relied entirely on the um new york times article which is not the most objective and right. it certainly presents facts in the best light for him mm-hmm. but the horse racing board first of all is going to have first hand witnesses who who made the decisions that they made and can explain and articulate why they made the decisions they made. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that he's really going to be successful. Now I would, if you, if you are, if you're so inclined, reach out to his attorney and suggest a class action on behalf of the betting public. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine uh, how you feel? I, I, I I'm I'm a I'm a pick four better. Can you imagine how I would felt if if I had used that arrow in my in that leg and was looking at at a, at a four or five thousand dollar pick four ticket and I I came in second and the horse to beat me violated the existing rules. How would I feel? Right. Well, and that's the that's the thing again the, where the due process is going to come in. Did mm-hmm. he really? violate articles that I read you would not give a healthy horse straight scopolamine unless you were crazy right because the side effects the risk of the side effects is gonna actually some of the side effects that I read like diarrhea would probably affect their performance in a negative way. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, giving a healthy horse like Justify Scopolamine, and he didn't have any testing. You know, he didn't have any violations the first two races. Mm-hmm. He didn't test positive after the Derby, Preakness, or Belmont. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at circumstantially Bob Baffert gave him scopolamine one race just to get the derby points <laughs> and then never did it again. And frankly, watching Justify in his first two races, he didn't need anything. He's just the alpha horse. And, you know, he is going to be at the front when the when the finish line comes. Hey, you're right. You know that. No, no, you're right. I mean, you know, it is. It it it, it's water, you know, under the bridge regarding the the individual fans two years later, and it's just it's just a comment about the integrity of this sport. And and that's right. I mean, when you get down to due process and you get the court and you start looking at all the evidence, you might very well come to the argument that this is not a violation and. Right, and uh, that that's a that's a decision, and people disagree on fi- on, on conclusions in court many many times. Right. And it, it it is it is the appearance of impropriety, and I think you know the California Horse Racing Board, as you said earlier, could have come out and said this was the positive test. These were the horses that tested positive. You know, these were the questions that we had, and this is how we answered them. Mm-hmm. And we have de- yep. decided not. We've decided to declare it environmental contamination 
and not a violation of any of the rules. And that would have that would have taken all the wind out of the New York Times article 18 months later because then there would have been a press conference from the California Horse Racing Board explaining in April or May of 2018 prior to the Derby being run. Does anybody know, I don't know, maybe Brian or or you at least have have this, is that I know that if, if, if the rule said immediate disqualification, what that means, but while they're getting the testing done, uh, what happened? I mean, would they have? Would he have st- even if they said, "Well, we're going to get a split sample and the results don't come back," could he have run in the Derby anyway, even though he was he wasn't sure he won that race? Or would would the rules well, allow require that he not run in the Derby until they adjudicated it? Well, I think another that's another part of due process. Yeah. Um, the board made a decision immediately after the race within a few days, probably more likely because of the circumstances, multiple horses across different barns. Okay. Over that weekend, test all mm-hmm. testing positive for the same substance. And they've had problems at Santa Anita with Jimson weed contamination in 2009. Mm-hmm. So there's a precedent for that, you know, decision. But I think it was because it was different trainers and, you know, multiple horses and, you know, some of them were, you know, not all of them were the justified caliber of horse. Mm-hmm. And so that was what led them to believe that contamination. And who knows, somebody may have, you know, collected invoices for bedding and and hay shipments and found they all use the same supplier. Mm -hmm. And that circumstantially would lead to, you know, a reasonable inference of environmental contamination, not deliberate administration. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I guess a little bit to your your question too, Michael. Um, I think it's, I think every jurisdiction is a little bit different. Um, so basically what would happen is, you know, they they find the positive, um, the trainer asks for a split sample. I think at that point it's still technically an investigation, so I don't know if they've actually handed down the penalty yet. Now, if the split sample comes back positive as well, then I think the violation goes through. But then the trainer technically has the right to appeal that violation. And so they may get an order from the, the horse racing board to kind of stay any penalties pending the appeal. So I think what's going to come out in this is that even if, you know, everything had been followed by the letter of the law, it, 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 he probably still would have been allowed to run. Um, okay. Because yep. everything would have still been technically under appeal. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's ever really happened in this exact type of scenario before you know as far as like you know high profile because really I, mm-hmm. I the only other situation where i think it would come into play in, in a more normal circumstance would, would be like a horse breaking their maiden um and then all of a sudden be found to be positive for something that the trainer's under appeal well is the horse not allowed to race you know a, 
you know, I, I don't know how that would affect their status as far as a maiden or not a maiden at that point um, and what races they would be eligible for. But it's, I think it's, you know, again, it just goes to each individual state's rules on that and whether, you know, even if the California Horse Racing Board came back and said, you know what, we're, we're going to allow the appeal, but we're not staying the penalty, um, you know, so the penalty is still enforced. Uh, mm-hmm. My guess is the owners would have just taken that to, to to a higher court and said, "No, we want the we want the the penalty state as well until the appeal is heard." And they probably would get it on the grounds of due process. So, mm-hmm. correct. And it might even have resulted in, you know, a federal judge staying the penalty, so that you know, Justify could could yep. run in the Kentucky Derby, run in the Preakness, run in the Belmont. And that's usually the, the type of situation that even hamstrings um, racing commissions, uh, you know, when they try to eject somebody or, or file a ruling for a suspension of a trainer or something like that, um, you know, because of the way the laws are due process. And it gets very, very weird, uh, with, you know, especially when you get a, a inject, ejections of people because they're licensed by the state, so technically they're entitled to different due process than others. Um, a lot of times, you, you know, you talk to some of the, the executive directors of, of racing commissions, they say, look, you know, we want to suspend these guys. It's the way due process works. The courts won't let us. It's, you know, they just keep staying mm-hmm. their suspensions. And, you know, it, it's, it's not that they're not trying in a lot of cases. It's just sure. that the law is not mm-hmm. completely on their side with, with being able to suspend them as quickly as they would want to. Correct. And there's kind of a similar analogy with uh... – you know, professional doctors, lawyers, funeral directors, um, investigations that don't result in charges, even though there are serious allegations, they're confidential. Yep. Well, even when you talk okay, about, I mean, so, you know, speed of, of even investigations, I mean, this has kind of fallen below the rate or, you know, or, or off the, the, the trail of interest. But the whole investigation that was being conducted into Mongolian groom and him breaking down in the Breeders' Cup Classic, that should have been done within a month. And mm-hmm. to my knowledge, they're still, you know, well, they're still gathering information and they're still talking to people. It's, and I know a lot of the vets that are probably involved in this or, or people that are they're, they're lawyering up and their lawyers are saying, you know, don't answer this question, don't answer that question, or you know, we're going to need a subpoena to get this, that, or the other thing. But, you know, I, I think that's something that frustrates the general public, number one, but the but the fans as well, is that a lot of these investigations seem to take a lot longer than they should. And, you know, I, I used to be just as frustrated, but I, I learned more of the, at least the process from the state investigation side of it that they have to, that, that they have to go through. And it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing as, as the criminal side. It's, you know, they they are granted stays, they're granted continuances, and mm-hmm. um, they can appeal. So it just a lot of these things just take time. Um, sometimes I, you know, I do think personally that some of these investigations could be done a lot quicker than they are, but um, you know, and 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 finished up and and a ruling made. But you know, we have unfortunately no control over that. And you know, it, it does look like you know, I think a lot of times the fans and the public perceives it as more cover ups. The longer these things kind of just drag out and. The industry, I think, kind of hopes that people will just forget about them, and it's just, you know, maybe maybe 15 years ago they would have and just moved on, but, you know, in today's day and world, no, they're not, you know, they're not going to forget about it, and, you know, they, the, the commissions need to step up a little bit and, and, and really either change their regs, change their house rules, but make it so that, you know, things are more transparent and more clear, 
And, you know, again, looking at, I think what singles us out a lot of times is you look at the way things are investigated and done, you know, in other jurisdictions around the world. It's, 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 I think they look at America and it's kind of like, you know, it's comical the way that, that, that some of our racing, um, you know, commissions and, and, and industry kind of doles out justice and, and, and doles out things. And, I realize a huge part of that is because, you know, in other countries, it's more of a national governing body, so they have more authority to do that. But, um, you know, you just look at some of these other places, it's they're just, they're just so much more transparent and things are just so much more clear, you know, as far as this is the rule, this is they broke the rule, and you know what, mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to get away with it. And, and they just have more respect and integrity from the public and the fans because of that. So, But I think in the, you know, in the U.S., you're you're innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a bad lawyer, a bad doctor, uh, you know, a thief, or a horse, you're innocent until proven guilty. And the person accusing you bears the burden of proving your guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, no other country has countries. Their citizens have certain rights, but they don't have a bill of rights. And they may have constitutions that apply to the government, but not guaranteeing certain things to the citizens. And that's the difference with the United States, is that we have that system, and it it applies to everything, just about everything we do, with some exceptions. So if a California board run by the government of California, it has to it has to adhere to Fourteenth Amendment due process. Yep. And would be violating yep. the law otherwise. Mm-hmm. So and there are so many competing interests that you have to try and balance. And I think that's what it came down to. You know, they they had to balance not accusing Bob Baffert of doing something he may not have done, um, not interfering with Justify's quest for Kentucky Derby Triple Crown, not interfering with the owner's business, um, you know, while still trying to protect the other horses who ran against Justify in their interests. So you have to there are so many com- competing interests it's it's a nightmare. You're right there. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it you but, know one of the things uh, that I think you know Brian mentioned earlier is that, you know, you know, in, in certain cases Expediency can be can go to the they can can be the the goal. And other times, being as slow as you possibly can is the goal. And and mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's all how you handle due process. You know, if they you know if somebody wanted to get the samples tested back in two days, and, and you know, you know, really do whatever they could over and over over time or whatever to keep somebody in the lab to do it, it it might get done. Somebody right. says, "Oh, it takes that long to get it." Now, okay, we'll wait to get it back. It just depends on how you want to, how you, how how much you want to work on it. It is a mess, and I don't think anybody will be totally satisfied, no matter what happens. 
Uh, yeah. But, that, but but that's sort of the way it happens in, 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 in the process. Right. And, you know, I think that they – I honestly believe that the horse racing board evaluated all of the information and – you know, they didn't have somebody coming forward and saying, I saw Bob Baffert inject the horse as he was walking out the barn that morning. So they don't have any direct evidence that he was administered a substance that he should not have been administered. So they've got the circumstantial evidence. And again, they've got other horses also testing positive. And not in a way that you normally find when scopolamine is administered. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually that you found they found scopolamine and atropine. And when you administer just scopolamine, you don't find the atropine. Yeah, because there's a there's an element of both drugs usually in a lot of the the environmental contamination that you see. So. That was what I misstated it earlier. Um, and then the you know the high urine value, but the blood value was normal with the normal. And I think the urine value was like six times what a dosage should have been. Yeah, and I think what it was was you know uh, um, it. it I, again, I, I think it goes not so much, you know, with, with this whole case as far as like the the drug itself, but exactly how it was handled and you know by the by the right. racing board and just the board not coming being forth coming with transparency. But like in that case, I, yeah, I think what triggered everybody's quote unquote suspicion was that his value was so much higher than all of the other, you know, even the ones that tested positive, you know, at that time. Mm-hmm. It was just so much higher that it just seemed a little out of the norm, and all the other horses that tested positive supposedly tested at a level that did not trigger an actual positive. So, um, But what was interesting, too, was the board never really put out what those numbers were. They just said certain mm-hmm. horses tested below the threshold. So, Right. But again, I, yeah, I, if, course- if I recall, the, like I said, I, what I recall the number for Justify was outside the limit of a therapeutic and more what would strike me more as an overdose situation yeah and, and that's where you kind of walk that line of you know, like i said if you if you really look at it you know and i think that's where some people brought up that you do have to get slightly higher than a therapeutic level for performance enhan- or perceived performance enhancement um since that's still debated but your your levels where you get to performance enhancement and then triggering over more into toxic side effects, it, it, it's such a narrow window that, that you're really playing with fire with it to, to, to do it. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's it's just not something that, you know, would normally probably be looked at. And, I, and like I said, I think that's why people are not necessarily looking at the drug itself. They're just looking at the whole process that was employed and, and sort of what, you know, Michael was saying as far as, like, what were the rules at the time and, you know, not a really good explanation as to why they weren't, followed the way they should have been, um, even though it probably would not have changed the result in the long run. You know, it's right. an interesting question, interesting question, and sort of debating this is, is, is useful, or fun at least, is that what, what responsibility do we think the people of the Triple Crown or the Kentucky Derby 
have in this situation since we have a separate jurisdiction making a decision that affects their races should 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 the Kentucky Derby say if a horse has been found uh, you know violating a particular drug regardless we don't want them to run it's our race it's our racing commission we're not going to do it let them adjudicate it in California because if it were not a race that led to it to getting into the Kentucky Derby or led to winning the winning all the things you due process can take as long as they want we can deal with them right oh, but here, you know, but I, should should the should the race should the jockey club should the should the Kentucky Derby say, wait a minute, you know, we're not going to yeah jeopardize the Triple Crown or the Triple Crown say we're going to jeopardize it if after it's all over we find out the horse was found to be contaminated. Now we really have a mess. We won't have a, we'll have no Triple Crown winner in, in in that year. So they should should they do they have a responsibility? That's my question. I, I think if they're advised, but I. The impression that I get is, you know, the board made the final call. Okay. Within a week. Yeah, and they, okay. and they probably can. You know, I, I think what the at least Churchill Downs is out on that probably was, you know, at least for for that particular situation, it says, look, we're going to go based on was the horse is the horse officially disqualified from the San Diego Derby or not at the time of entries for the Kentucky Derby. And, you know, and yep. they're going to probably fall back onto their point system and say, if the horse has enough points, we're not going to stop him from running. I mean, you know, and that's probably what they would fall back to, but it does raise a, a more of, I guess, a moral or an ethical question of, you know, do we want, you know, this horse, you know, uh, who has the potential of, of being drugged in any race, um, you know, running in the triple crown, uh, my guess is the they're probably at least at that time they probably were not going to err on that side because they knew that the 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 public maybe backlash at that point against them for holding a horse you know a, a very potentially good horse um out of something that really he had no control over probably wouldn't have gone over well and they were probably concerned about that aspect or you know again what you know, you you never know what goes on behind closed doors. So, um, you know, there, there could have been the threat. You know, Baffert turning around and saying, "If if you pull my horse, I'm just never going to run another horse in, you know, at Churchill or in the Derby or anything again." And mm-hmm. um, you know, well, he probably would never have held to something like that. But um, you know, it's uh, you just you, you just don't know what goes on behind closed doors in, in some of those those types of. Um, uh, you know, uh, situations, and my guess is Churchill probably would have just fallen back to their point system and said, if he's, if, if technically, if if he's got the points at the time of entry, he's he's okay to run. And um, right, I don't think, and, and and that's what created such a unique situation. Was in any other situation, they probably could have said, you know what, there there's nothing stopping him from running in a specific race. Um, in this case, it just happened to be the Derby, and he needed those points to be able to, to make the list of the top 20 or, you know, it was kind of an mm-hmm. a, 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 all in or all out race for him. If he had points before that, n- nothing, none of this probably would have mattered. Exactly. That's true. That's right. 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 Yeah. And I, to this yeah. day still want to know why he didn't run his two year old. <laughs> uh, it's explained in Lenny Shulman's book on him. Um, uh, I think he was just—he was kind of a, just a late developing cult, 
Um, and it was it was just a case. Like, I read that at least like you know six seven months ago, and I can't remember if it was they were trying to get a race to fill, and I don't think it did. Um, okay. When he was a two year old, and so it it just happened. It, it just it it wasn't because of anything super major. He might have had a little bit of a shin issue too. Um, as a two-year-old, that kind of just set him back a little bit, um, and that and that was the reason. It, it wasn't it wasn't anything super major. It was just kind of the way the cards played out. He he was just a late developing cult, and um, you know the, Lenny's book does a does a pretty good job of describing how they really felt from the time they really were looking at him as a derby horse. You know, the beginning of that year, they were they were under the gun for everything to go absolutely perfectly, or he, he wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um. So yeah, that was something. I always wondered, you know, was it just that he hadn't he hadn't grown into his massive body, <laughs> or he yeah, there were there were some growing pain issues I development. think um, with that, and you know, it just it's some horses, it, you know, it's it goes back to that argument too of you know at what point should you know uh, two year olds really be allowed to start racing versus not? Should we be allowing them to mature a little bit more before race? You know. And and that'll be another topic that's to be debated in the racing world to the end of time. So, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it, since we have kind of um, rambled a little far afield, uh, <laughs> we're gonna table any discussion of PETA tonight because PETA is a show in and unto itself. <laughs> Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we have historically, since we talked about fractures and and rehab, um, I was able to find three fracture success stories on the internet. Um, unfortunately, using the word fracture gets you a whole lot of results, and it's hard going through wheat and chaff. Um, hoist the flag in 1971. Yeah, hoist the flag was. Um, he was one of the first that really underwent, um, you know, a major orthopedic repair to a fracture. Um, he was able to be saved. He was considered really one of the next great ones. Um, just the way he mm-hmm. ran, and and there was just nobody that could really keep up with him. And then when he was in training. Um, he did fracture uh, one of his, his uh, legs, and they were actually to go in. Um, Dr. Reed, who was one of the vets that I volunteered for way, way back when, um, when I was first interested in vet med, um, he was one of the ones that, that, that helped do the surgery on Hoist the Flag and um, was able to save him uh, you know, uh, for, for stud duty and, and basically save his life. It was They were just starting out with doing more major orthopedic repairs um, on fractures and things like that with hoist the flag. So um, in that time frame, and it was just, uh, you know, a testament to really probably a little bit of technology that might have been a touch ahead of its time, too, um, mm-hmm. with, with those types of injuries. But uh, he was he was definitely a success story. And in some way, I mean, you know, a success story in the fact that he was able to survive and was saved with surgery. But, you know, a lot of people you talk to just look back and, and really wonder, if he wasn't injured, you know, he there's people that were saying he probably would have almost assuredly been a triple crown winner, um, just just the way he was running as a two year old and early into his three year old year. Correct. 
correct. Yeah, there is that what what might have been. Um, I think with any of these uh, racehorses who die young, as at three or younger, you wonder what might have been. I'm, I've always wondered what kind of uh, foals ruffian would have produced, mm-hmm. and who they would have bred her to. Um, so I think you even so wonder yeah. that, you know, I think you wonder that a lot of days now. People start to wonder that with just horses that are retired after their three-year-old year. I mean, you look at Omaha Beach right now and his, you know, uh, you know, the Pegasus is really going to be his last start. But a lot of people are saying, mm-hmm. and I think this is a bit of a stretch, but it's certainly possible. Like they were saying, you know, he could have a four-year-old season that rivaled Spectacular Bid in 79, just the way he looks to be coming into his own and stuff like that now. and. And but you know you you'll just never know, uh, you know because right. he, won't, he won't be given that chance. And so that's I mean mm-hmm. that's another area that fans really you know we talk about a lot in the fan world. And like it's hard to you know sometimes get fans generated and excited because as soon as they get excited about a horse they're retired. So it's uh, right uh, you know that's right. a bit of a problem. But uh, no yeah I mean hoist the flag was um, he certainly could have been one of the greats and uh, fortunately was saved through you know what at the time was very modern medicine. And he lived nine, nine or ten or eleven years mm-hmm. after that. So yeah, he he went on to lead a, a great life, and then of course charismatic nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, that uh, was um, obviously. I mean, that was made famous just from you know uh, obviously it happening right at the finish line of the Belmont and Chris Antley, you know, uh, cradling the leg, which probably did do a lot of. Um, good in preventing him from doing any further damage to the leg. But that was, again, right around when um, the whole arthrodesis procedure was really coming into favor. And, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the work Dr. Brownledge was doing with it. Uh, So that was really, that's when those fusion-type surgeries were really starting to take off and and prove to be life-saving scenarios. And he was, you know, lucky enough to... to, um, you know, undergo it and and not have any problems post-operatively with it and stuff like that, and went on to uh, you know a, a good life as well um, post-op. But it mm-hmm. it shows you know how um, you know a horse that and and again you look at kind of the rags to riches stories. You know, he was really on nobody's radar before the Derby, and then was going for the Triple Crown, and you know just lost out there and right. in the stretch. And I, I I don't think he would have won the Belmont even if he wasn't injured, but. Uh, but uh, you know, certainly uh, a heartbreaking story, and fortunately, you know, one that had a happy ending. Correct. And uh, in fact, he went uh, he went to stud, then was at stud in Japan, and then retired and came back to old friends. Yep. Where he lived out the remainder of his short life because he did uh, pass after a fracture of his pelvis in a stall. Yeah, and and that's, again, that's one of those real freak-type injuries um, that some horses develop. There, there, There is no good way. I mean, some horses will slip, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, in their stall, or uh, they may just, uh, you know, sometimes they just land the wrong way if they're bucking around or something mm-hmm. like that, and it just, it just breaks. And, it, it, again, it's one of those injuries where you can't, you can't really get a horse to stay off their 
their pelvis for a while to uh, to grow at the heel. So they, they, it's just unfortunately there's nothing that can be done. Yeah. Well, I think by the time they found him the following morning, it was it was it was overnight. Yeah. And they found him the next morning, and he had passed. Um, they think it was probably almost immediate. Yeah, if I remember right, what happened in his case was um, they believe uh, there's a lot of major arteries that run right around with the pelvis, mm-hmm. and so uh, they believe with a fracture it probably ruptured one of those major arteries. And, and yeah, in those cases, the bleed out is is almost instantaneous um, mm-hmm. in those situations. So there's, I mean, fortunately in his case, there's 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 not a lot of suffering that goes on in that in that particular situation. Right, and for those worried about California chrome. Charismatic and War, War Emblem both came back from Japan. War Emblem came back without his testicles, but that's because he was stubborn. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and he wasn't, he wasn't and really found breathe. to be able to impregnate too many mares anyway, so. No, but he didn't like, he did not like breeding. Nope. Um, and so he would not breed. And so they said, okay, we're going to geld you now. And that's had no effect on his personality. So, and then there's also the player who uh, actually sustained an injury at the fairgrounds in New Orleans and was uh, saved by LSU, that veterinary medicine. And uh, he is at Crestwood Farm now in stud duties. And I think he had the same, the arthrodesis, the, the arthrodesis, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And of it, the ankle it's, joint. Like I said, it's probably wrong to say it's a common procedure, but it's done a lot more now um, uh, than it used to. And it, it, it's it's a procedure that is life-saving. It's, it's, the, the issue is usually not so much the surgery itself. It's, it's you worrying about complications that happen afterwards, such as laminitis or infection mm-hmm. setting in or something like that. Um, those are the biggest usually concerns with surgery. Um, the, the surgery itself really does provide great stability to the leg and to the joint. It's um, you're, you're kind of walking on eggshells for the first at least two weeks post-op and sometimes longer, hoping that that nothing else goes wrong and and uh, and that the horse, you know, you know, has a uneventful recovery. And then, yeah, once you usually get past that that danger period, it's um, they usually do fine. There's uh, there obviously there's a a change in their gait and, and stuff like that because you, you basically mm-hmm. use the leg in, in a, or the ankle in a certain position. But other than that, the, you know, the horses do fine. Correct. And he he has, he, uh, even the vets at LSU attributed the fact that he likes, he liked his rest time. And he was a horse that could lay for several hours yep. and just sleep. And he occasionally would sit on his hindquarters and just watch the world go by. But a very calm, you know, relaxed horse. Yeah, and, 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 and that they, factors into a lot of it. Um, you know, I, it's the same, I mean, I deal with it obviously more in the small animal realm, but you you just have to have the... The, the horse that has the right mentality for it. I mean, you you can keep them sedated and, and medicated for a period of time, but you obviously can't keep that going on forever. So um, you have to have the horse that's that's going to, you know, take care of him, him or herself as well as as accept everything that you're doing to him. And uh, a lot of times it can it can just be the 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 temperament of the horse that 
uh, or dog or cat or whatever that that really determines the outcome more than anything. Mhm. All right. So yeah, those are those those are three of the success stories I found, and I think there was a a Philly, um, who is who just went through one of the sales, but I couldn't tell whether she was a colic or a fracture. But she had been off for several, like almost a year. I have to, yeah, I have to look that up. I'm not going through I'm not the sure sales. And it was just recently, um, and I can't. Her name escapes me now, but I should have sent it in my email to you, to you guys, so you'd know I wanted to talk about it. I was hesitant to change the outline too much. Um. And then, so right now the standard of regulation is every state that has horse racing has its own board. So what yeah, board or, okay or regulatory group or, or regulatory gaming committee? Yeah, it, it varies group. on title, but but that's the general idea. And what's what's allowable in New York might not be in Florida, or Louisiana. Um, I think Louisiana is still kind of the wild west of horse racing because whenever I read about um, rules in Louisiana, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, so. they've you know they haven't quite picked up on on a lot of the you know the the same level of rules and enforcement as, as some other places. I mean, it used to be. Um, uh, New Mexico actually used to be one of the worst offenders, but they've actually really cleaned up their game, um, I would say, in the last five years. So, yeah, I think Louisiana is kind of um, uh, the the one that sticks out now. Um, uh, Pennsylvania used to be like that as well, and I think still has a little bit of that reputation, but I, I do know from being at the commission meetings and the regulations that they're looking at, at putting through and stuff, they are they are really making a lot of positive strides as far as um, you know cleaning things up and, and and bringing themselves more into line with a lot of other uh, local states and, and and national trends and things like that. So um, it does seem to be that you know Louisiana is the one that right at least right now seems to be one of the bigger outliers as far as um, adopting uh, more modern rules and and regulations. Now, let me ask you this, because that's one of the accusations on the California board. Should these boards be comprised of non-racing, non-interested citizens, or should it be a combination of some knowledgeable, interested parties as well as independent, non-racing? Kind of as a check and balance. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I can give a kind in, in New York, for example, I'm on the, the race, the, the uh, New York State Racing Fan Advisory Council, and we have restrictions about what, what if we can make any money in the sport, if we have ownership of, of a horse, uh, sorry, maybe you own partial of a horse, and they try to restrict it so that it's totally just somebody that's objective. And I think if you look at it, even if you look at a judiciary or local family, local courts, you don't have to, you know, you, you can be trained to be, to learn how to adjudicate. 
so maybe maybe you're onto something. Maybe we should be talking about um, try to cut the bias as much as possible away from mm-hmm. the process. You you need knowledgeable people though. Oh yeah, yeah. I think but they have to be willing to give up their interest or financial stake in order to serve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I would yeah. agree more along those lines. I, th- I think that's where kind of the rub is right now in that um, in most, obviously in most uh, commissions that are made up, you're not allowed to obviously wager on any of the races that go on in your state, mm-hmm. but they're not making you relinquish any ownership of horses you might have or, or, or things like that. And I think that's where the, the conflict of interest comes in. Um, you know, looking at it, I, personally, I think it probably should be a mix um, of people because I do think you need probably at least a little bit of that, um, you know, experience that, that some folks have and, and, and understanding at least a little bit of the industry. I mean, you can be trained in it, but I, I mm-hmm. do think there is some people that maybe – you know, that are involved, were involved in at least day to day. Um, if you take away all other financial incentive for them, you know, to, to potentially rule in, in the horseman's favor, let's say, or, or an owner's favor or something, then um, I think it probably makes it a little more fair. But I think if you, it, it's hard because I think if you try to make it, let's say, all of a board of just citizens, you, you have the, the risk of, going too far in the other direction so um correct you know like i, I know is speaking from experience of talking to people that have uh, are from different states and state veterinary boards some veterinary boards still have a majority of veterinarians that that make it up mm-hmm. but other states it's just all non-veterinarians so they could be lawyers they could be you know they could be somebody else but they're not vets and that really does a lot of vets feel that does take away a little bit of something, at least of understanding when they're looking at complaints and things like that, as far as understanding the profession in, a, in enough of a way that, you know, they're able to make a, a true ruling on it. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if there's, there's really a good answer to it. I mean, but then you've got a state like Florida, which pretty much has like just a gaming commission that really, there's people on it that know nothing about racing, and if you talk to people down in Florida, seem to care very little about what goes on in racing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they they really have no knowledge of of the sport down there, and and that's just the way their their commission runs things. So, uh, it uh, you know it, it it varies across the board, um, but I do think a mix. Um, but I think a mix maybe geared hev- more heavily towards independent people and, and one or two people maybe with knowledge on the. Of, of the sport, so this way you're not driving it to where even if you have a couple of independent people, it, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter because they wouldn't be able to to get enough votes to pass anything anyway. I think it's going to be interesting. Test is, is when uh, Ruiz's document went to court. I, I read something. I read it. I think I remember. Just about everybody on the California Racing Board has resigned. Yep, I got that right. Mm-hmm. It's true. So now Governor Newsom's going to have to appoint new people. Maybe he's listening to our show, Brian, and he'll he'll put on some people that are. <laughs> well, I know he has. Like I said, he has appointed a couple, um, and it, you can definitely tell it's a different trajectory. Um, has he has he that, appointed that, new people? I haven't seen it. He has. Yeah, he's he's put a couple of um, uh, Dr. Ferraro is one who's now the chair. Um, 
I can't remember their other names, but there's a couple of other people he's appointed so far. And, uh, yeah, it, 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 it definitely has changed the makeup of the board, and at least from listening and, and reading about the first couple of meetings, where the where the board is going to go as far as racing in California with being much more stringent on things, but you know the proof is kind of in the pudding. So they're they're talking about it right now, but whether they actually uh, uh, stick to it or not is, is kind of an, another story. But it it does raise you know I mean and that's the other thing that always comes up with a lot of these um, ra- racing commissions or, or racing boards anyway is they're technically their boss is the governor, so it's. You know, and a lot, or the mm-hmm. legislature, depending on who appoints that particular member. So, you know, can they ever be truly independent if you know their appointment is from a government agency that may come down on them and say, "We want you to do this." Right, <clears throat> and that that is the the difficult uh, difficult thing. I'm pulling up the board members. Yeah, we've got Gregory Ferraro, DVM chairman. Oscar Gonzalez, Vice Chairman, Fred Moss, Alex Solis, Dennis Alfieri, and Wendy Mitchell. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, I think of the old board, Solis is the only one that's kind of like the the carryover. Um, Mm -hmm. Yep. And there was a time and, when he was, I mean, if you want to talk about conflict of interest, which was, in, there was a time when he was still an active jockey and he was on the commission. So, you know, that raised a ton of weird conflict of interest issues that some people were raising. It's like, well, how can you be, you know, actively still riding and, and serving on a board that oversees potential penalties against you? So, Well, I mean, in cases... You know, like in appellate cases where uh, the judge, one of the appellate justices was a trial judge or um, uh, a prosecutor or worked for the firm that, you know, is defending the case, they will usually recuse themselves. And then if a pro tem judge has to come in and decide the appeal, then that that's what happens or if you know there's a they can form a majority or have an odd number so that they can get a majority then they'll just go ahead and make their make their decision depending like if it's a three judge panel um, we've had judges who recuse because they used to work for the defense firm or they used to work for the plaintiff's firm or you know they handled the trial, or they handled a motion to, you know, to compel, and so they recuse, and another panel member is appointed. And I think that's something that he could do if it was a if it was an issue of him, he would recuse himself, and then the board would decide. Yeah, and I'm sure that's what happens in, you know, a lot of situations. But I think it was also coming up with not necessarily just, let's say, an issue of a specific jockey, but in in Mm -hmm. formulating regulations and and other things, you know, the regular rules of racing that they may have to promulgate. You know, could he be truly objective and non-biased if he was still actively riding? I mean, you know, it's you see it like kind of and obviously this would be a talk to for another for another podcast, but 
you know, with, with the whip usage and all of that stuff. It's, you know, will jockeys say the same thing now that are retired and don't have to worry about securing mounts as they would if they were still actively riding, so. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think in corporate, I mean, any corporate board, everybody on that board is, has an interest in the financial health and well-being of the company. They're not outside independent yeah. people. And so even when they're asked to decide whether the company did something wrong or not, it's the same, you know, the same kind of quandary, but that's the way that's the way corporate boards are structured. So that's what I think people I think people on any horse racing board should have the knowledge. Not necessarily an interest, financial or otherwise. But they should have the knowledge. And I think it's it's good to have a jockey's perspective on it and an owner perspective, a veterinary perspective, a trainer's perspective. Because then all those people outside are going to say, well, my interests are not being represented because you don't have a jockey. Yeah, but I think I mean, they should actually, also add a fan. It, it, it's interesting because that goes to probably what Michael and I talk about all the time is, um, you know, there's there's no <laughs> fan or handicapper a lot of times uh, representation on those boards, um, which is something that I think we both feel should be kind of mandatory of any uh, uh, racing board just to give that, you know, keep that perspective in, uh, mm-hmm. in the board's mind and, and some of the things that they're deciding. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and now another and I think, solution... By the way, I think it's interesting if, oh. if you happen to believe you know, that idea that Brian mentioned is that, you know, we've often, you know, promoted among our members is that it's pretty easy if you're somewhere near where the board meets, where these commission meets, to go and watch them. And like Brian mm-hmm. did, you eventually you know, build your way inside a little bit. And if you're not officially appointed, at least you might have some influence. Correct. So, you know, maybe she don't want, what's that adage? Uh, don't let the, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yep. Correct. And some get of the some, innovations. Uh, right. And yeah, having, having your viewpoint heard is, um, you know, is the is the is the way to go. <clears throat> and if you get a couple of people who are sympathetic to your viewpoint, then you'll have a, a measure of representation, if not directly. Yeah, and that's and that's it, kind of what I tell to everybody. You know, it's. Um... And it, it, it's interesting, I, the, the blowback I get on some of it is, oh, well, they're not going to listen or they don't do anything anyway. It's like, that's not really an excuse not to go and continue to try. I mean, you know, it took me, like I said, the the, the commission formed a working group, uh, you know, about middle of last year um, to try to work on some more in-depth issues in, in racing in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I can guarantee you that a fan, or well, I guess myself right now, I'm representing the fan handicapper, um, would not have even been considered for it had I not been there kind of like meeting after meeting, just, you know, one, just letting them know that we're watching and two, commenting on, on various things. It, it, it does make a mm-hmm. difference. You just have to really, it, it just, 
you have to be able to stick stick with the process because that was probably a two three year you know uh, process of me just being at every meeting and bringing things up that that got you know that part and to allow the fan to be part of the working group and it has so far made a you know a big difference in in both education and and getting that viewpoint across right and that's good yeah but you you were around so much they thought well he's always here we might as well give him something to do yeah it was probably just a way you know oh well this, this will shut him up for a while so you know we'll <laughs> yeah let's let him see it's not so easy mm-hmm. <laughs> and it backfired on him i hope uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm still not, I, you know, I don't exactly sit quiet at the working group meetings and things, but, you know, I've I've learned, you know, and again, I've learned there's certain ways of, of getting things across and, and working with things, and, I, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I don't have patience on certain things that I should, so um, it's all, you know, still a learning process for me and, and dealing with things, but, you know, I, I think the one thing that, at least with the working group that I'm part of there and, and with a lot of things is, the industry doesn't always realize how things look to the outside world. You know, they, they, they can be very insular, and it goes back to that, well, you don't understand thing type of stuff. But at the same time, it's like, no, you guys don't understand, like, the what you're kind of up against. And I've even said this, you know, to them. It's like, I'm not the person you should be worried about as far as, like, trying to shut down racing or or really, you know, all of that stuff. I said, it's it's not me. It's 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 the uneducated public out there right now that is listening to the wrong groups that you're not, that that you really think are, you know, just not going to do anything. And I said, and those are the ones that you have to worry about. And that's what I'm trying to bring is like, this is what the perception is right now out there, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in the public, but both also from the fans and the handicappers. I mean, this is what we see. This is what we see day in and day out. And, you know, we understand that not everything you know, I, I mean, I probably have about 90 ideas that I could bring to them, and I'd be lucky if one of them got through. But, um, you know, we, we realize that not everything's going to change that quickly, but you, they have to be aware of what the perception is right now. And I think finally that's starting to, 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 to be realized with a lot, of, a lot of the different racing commissions out there. Right. And then um, I think tonight we're, we're going to, since, like, as I explained earlier, blog talk, has an indeterminate period after two hours. Um, we're going to close talking about a, an innovation. Uh, it's been proposed by Arthur Hancock III, who comes from blue blood of blue blood uh, breeder families, um, and authored by Dr. Langwan is a strong central authority to regulate racing in the United States. And Dr. Langwa has authored an official constitution and rights of thoroughbred horse racing. And yeah, it's and, and this excellent. Was, yeah, you know, what, it, it, what kind of struck me was everybody, and they talk about it all the time, well, we need a national commissioner, we need a national this, but nobody's really like sat down and said, okay, well, what would the structure look like? And so I just figured, all right, well, you know, I couldn't, you know, write legislation or anything like that Mm -hmm. to to, to save me. But I said, let's, if you modeled it after something that for the most part has stood the test of time, which is the U.S. Constitution, that, that's kind of what I was going after. And it was kind of just like, okay, well, if you, if everybody kind of had what they wanted, 
this is sort of what it would look like. And it, it would just, you know, it's, it's a document that I, I think I had 14 or 15 articles or something in it um, that just kind of went through, you know, this is what a national commissioner would look like. This is what, uh, you know, uh, the, the thoroughbred racing group that would act almost as kind of like a legislature would have representation from all aspects in it that would make a lot of the regulations, but the commissioner would have the, the real authority to lay down um, any kind of sanctions or penalties. You would have you know, a true uh, kind of like national board of stewards that would oversee things sort of along the lines that like, you know, um, in the NHL where any kind of video replay is done in a central office now and, and that's where it's decided. That sort of same thing with you know riding infractions, um, you know that had happened in the race with objections, and um, having a national equine medical director that is in charge of all you know everything and anything related to the horse, horse's health as far as medication. Having yeah, it, it just goes kind of on and on, and mm -hmm. I won't roll through every single you now, know article and things like that, but just some sort of national structure that would Lisa. be more of a dream than anything, but hopefully it would be something, a starting point for people to look at and pick apart. Lisa, real right. quick, I want to ask something. Uh, you you guys are talking about, you know, a national, you know, a chairman or something of that nature, a commissioner. And honestly, I've been listening to this and somebody to follow their model because Lord knows it's screwed up as is. But has anyone ever thought about looking at the NFL model? You know, everybody kind of owns their own thing, but they answer to this one commissioner. I mean, and plus, you know, that kind of takes care of your drug policy, too. We were talking about doping earlier. Mm -hmm. I think, I, I think they, they have, you know, and I, I think they've tried to look at those. I, it, it gets... I think it gets very complicated in racing, um, partly because there, there's it's kind of with the NFL where it works is kind of like there's the owner of the team and then there's the commissioner and that's kind of where it ends. It 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 gets more crazy when you've got owners of racetracks and owners of um, horses that that get involved. I think a structure like that would work very very well. I think the problem with it is nobody's willing to give up enough control to make it happen right now. Um, sure. And and that's and that's really the biggest thing is is nobody wants to cede that type of uh, power to somebody you know and give up the you know the mini monopolies that they have currently at different parts of the country. I I think that mm -hmm. model could certainly work as well. Um, you know, with it, uh, it's just a matter of of the groups coming together and agreeing to something like that. And the, the closest thing I think that there is right now is kind of the the Mid Atlantic Thoroughbred Compact, and and uh, even that's not been approved yet by every every state that that it's supposed to be part of. So it's uh, uh, it's a long process to try to cede that kind of control. And really, even with the Mid Atlantic Thoroughbred Compact, it's basically all the states just agreeing to follow a similar set of rules. It, it, they're still not. Mm -hmm. one person that would be in charge of all of those states and and laying out penalties and stuff like that it's it's just kind of agreeing on more of a centralized structure which i don't know if it it, it probably helps things for the horsemen that kind of run on those circuits so they're all kind of running under the same medication rules but mm -hmm. other than that it really doesn't necessarily bring a central authority more so to anything than anybody mm -hmm. else has tried to do right okay right. And I had a question about the national stewards. 
would there be stewards on site at the track? Yeah, the, the way I kind of envisioned it would was um, the stewards certainly still could initiate inquiries, um, you know, if they see something weird. It would almost be kind of like a, a referee on the field. And then if there was okay. a, where they kind of vi- visualize instant replay. So if a steward saw something in a stretch drive or a start or something like that, they can flash the inquiry sign. But the decision as far as what would be adjudicated based on that would be made by that panel that was in, you know, a situation room somewhere or something like that that was that was looking at that. So, I no, I still think there would have to be stewards on the track you know, to to address okay. all the other aspects that go on on a race day as far as that, you know, calling a race official and, and, and stuff like that. But any kind of the, – the idea behind it would be if you have a more centralized group of stewards, you know, that would in theory hopefully kind of enforce whatever rules you're looking at relatively more the same way as compared to, you know, the stewards in California. They always say look at – view something totally different than the stewards in New York and mm-hmm. you're following the same set of rules it's just kind of their interpretation that would that would be there yeah. and hopefully by putting these centralized people having to have so much more experience and continuing education behind them they would all be kind of a little bit more on the same page now another question that I had as I was reading it would they have to adjust racing because you may have simultaneous races going off at 10 tracks around the United States on any given Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So would they have to adjust I, I think they would schedules? have to adjust a little bit. Um, the way I kind of envision it is that, you know, any kind of uh, inquiries could be, you know, triggered by either the central people or the stewards that are at the track. Um and but you would hope that most of them would be triggered more by the stewards at the track if they would see something um and or you know if a jockey labeled an objection and there probably would have to be a little bit of of shifting of post times and understanding that there might be a slightly longer delays if you know the stewards for some reason are asked to look at you know three separate races roughly at the same time um but i i think the industry would just have to adapt to that and uh okay you know uh, adjust accordingly and where they would have to try to synchronize their their post times a little bit more um to make that happen and maybe that would be the impetus to to get them to Earth. not try to run races right on top of each other um you know which, which seems to be what they like to do now yeah or stagger post times mhm mhm so that cuz it only takes 2 minutes to run a race i mean and some of the you know the the six seven furlong and mile races don't even take that long, <laughs> so it's not it won't eat up that much of your day. So, but that is that's an interesting it's a really interesting concept, and I like the representation of multiple groups, <clears throat> not just owners, trainers, jockeys. But the medication and and uh, testing people and Therofan and um, the chaplains groups. I mean, like fourteen different groups being represented under your model. Yeah, and I like I said, I tried to I tried to make it where there would be more, you know, like a good set of checks and balances. So this way, you know, you get equal kind of say among all of them and and the one thing i threw in there 
that I think, well, maybe a lot of people would like to see in just bottled on, on national government today anyway would be that, you know, you, under that structure, you would really be forced to kind of come to a consensus because, you know, if you guys, if, if the group, whatever group gets together, can't really come up with basic rules within six months, well, then you know what? You're all dismissed and you can't be on the panel again and we're going to bring in new people who can do it. Um, you know, you, you put that kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of thing hanging over them. Sometimes it gets them to focus a little bit more and realize that, uh, you know, oh, we, we've really got to, you know, make this work or, you know, we're all going to mm-hmm. be gone and we'll have absolutely no say. So, Correct. I, I really there's, like there's that idea, it, too. Yeah, there's sort of an interesting you know, thing about what Brian's idea, and, and I've used it, and I quote Albert Einstein, and he tells us that in one of his quotes is that you're not going to solve a problem that's been with thinking that got you into it. Uh, and so the idea is you're going to have to have a new thinking and new people thinking about it. But we, we seem to miss that in racing. We take the people that have been running racing and for the last 20 years or 30 or 40 years and, and let them make the decision how to improve the racing problem. Mm-hmm. I think they do a whole lot better if they expanded their, their view and, uh, and and tried to include people that thought a little differently than they did. Um but that's, and I think Brian's sort of getting at, what if you expand the base of the people that are making some of the decisions in racing and, and get a different orientation, different, different perspective? Would you get a better, would you get a better model? Correct. And I think you would. And I think it's, My, it's really time for some fresh It couldn't be much worse, could it? <laughs> no. It couldn't be much worse. <laughs> so, and uh, of course, a fresh fresh perspective um the thoroughbred safety coalition which um the jockey club supports and i believe keeneland is a track that has become a member of the safety coalition yeah this is it to me and and a lot of us to kind of follow it we're cautiously skeptical i guess is maybe the best way to put it it's you know the, the concept is is really good, but they haven't really done anything of yet. You, they've kind of just they've talked about a whole bunch of stuff that's already been implemented in a lot of places. So I'm not quite sure where they're getting at with certain things with it. Okay. You know, at least me personally, and I think as they bring more, but it's interesting because you've got people on the Thoroughbred Safety Coalition groups like Churchill Downs and stuff like that that are vehemently opposed to the Horse Racing Integrity Act, and you've got other members on it that are, you know, like the jockey club that just kind of came on board that is really pushing the Horse Racing Integrity Act. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see the dynamic there and if they actually come out with a statement for or against it. But uh, at least me personally, I'm waiting for them to kind of do a little bit more instead of just saying these are the things that, that we promote because mm-hmm. some of the stuff that they're promoting is stuff that's already been kind of done, and they're not really necessarily – breaking new ground in any way or, or getting a lot of things done very quickly. So um, if it's just another one of the name or what we call like the alphabet organizations in racing, I mean, it, it's good for a press release and, you know, good window dressing, but it, it, it doesn't really necessarily address or change a lot of the, the, the issues that are going on in racing right now. So uh, at least for me, okay. I'm kind of on the fence on it. Just, just I want to see where they go with it first before, you know, kind of backing it fully 
Right. Yeah, and I think I think I always wanted maybe the name obviously mean different things, but you know the the NTRA Safety and Integrity Alliance that was put together mm-hmm. years ago to do all the accreditation of racetracks. Um, you wonder why that one of the reasons that didn't succeed. It was modeled after because I talked to Alex Walter about this. It was modeled after the the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare that reviews hospitals for reimbursement. And because mm-hmm. he he was on a hospital board and he said, well, can't we use a similar model? And he came up with it. And but it just never got any teeth. People people didn't have to. They didn't join. You know, tracks didn't join. Nobody cared. Fans never really even asked a question when they when they walked up to went to a track or placed a bet. Are you accredited? Didn't make any difference okay. to a fan. And until right. and. and and so what? What's different about this one? They, they got to show me. Let's let's be from Missouri. Show me. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is, you know, that is true. You want to you want an organization that's effective and actually doing something, not just riding someone else's coattails. Right. Or, right. And, and, or like Brian Columbus said, discovering like, America. You know, America right. was here. He went the wrong way and, you know, didn't end up where he thought he was. And, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's a feel good, a feel good thing too to kind of get the press excited over trying to do something. I think Brian's point is a really good one. It could be good. Mm-hmm. could be bad. It could be nothing. We don't know. Let's see what they're going to do. Right. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you again for joining us tonight. Um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and close it out because I do not want us to get cut off All right. in the middle of a thought Thank or you. topic. <laughs> Thank you again. This was so wonderful. And uh, I think if, if your schedules permit around Kentucky Derby time, sure, that'd be great. I would love to love have it. both we of you it. back. Yep. Great. Good. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great night. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Oh my gosh! You get to talking so much that you lose track of time. But I mean, I tell you, like I said, the overwhelming thought during all of this, especially when we were talking about you know doping, I was like, my goodness, I thought we had a problem with that in professional sports. You know, human professional sports, but. Mm-hmm. My goodness, I mean, that was the that was the uh, response was, you know, the NFL came up with the response for doping in the human world. Why not follow that model, like I said? Um, you know, and, and to a degree, but why they the reasoning, the reasoning behind the the drugs. Now there are ther- there are therapeutic uses, but there are potential for enhancement of performance as well. And there's a right. fine line. So, um, and I think you know, for me, I would be more comfortable if those kind of determinations were made by veterinarians. So then, Lisa, or at least with input them. from veterinarians. Then I ask rather though, than a bureaucrat. There's certain banned substances on the NFL's list that, as long as it's within 
therapeutic levels, quote unquote, then it's allowed. Why don't we determine what therapeutic levels are? Yeah, that would take uh, that would take testing and studies and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know the next time we talk to Dr. Langwa, um, we can go a little bit more in depth. Uh, on you know Lasix and and Butte and horses can run without those medications, right? You know they they do do it in Europe, but I think we also, you know, I think that's the wonderful thing about Dr. Langlois is he recognizes a lot of factors are involved even to form any opinion. Right, and so he learns what the factors are, and and then educates people. Sure. Yeah, a horse who doesn't have problems with, you know, bleeding, with exertion, no, they don't need Lasix. Don't give them Lasix, but it's kind of not great for the horse under exertion if they start bleeding. And the public that doesn't want to see that, right? Absolutely. You know, um, so, you and, and I think we have to get yeah we have to we have to get uh, we have to balance and always err on the side of the welfare of the horse. Oh, absolutely. I think that is the thing. And so, um, and sometimes it's a ca- it's going to be a case by case basis. So, and we didn't get to talk about charity again. Oh. I think we're going to move that to the top next time. Yeah, we got to. So, all right. Well, let's close it out before for blog talk cuts me off. Okay. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Michael and I want to thank Mr. Amo and Dr. Langlois for taking the time to join us again tonight. If you want to learn more about Therafan, Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance, and Pet Pantry of, Lan- of Lancaster, you can find them on Google. Join us on Sunday, January 19th, 2020, for a special episode commemor- commemorating what would have been Stacy Lee Stites' 43rd birthday. Michael and I talked to Stacy's mother, Carol Stites, and her sisters, Crystal Dobbs Hefley and Deborah Oliver, to learn more about the real Stacy Stites from three people who knew her better than anyone. Then on Tuesday, January 21st, 2020, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central, we'll be back to our regular schedule for Episode 46, State of Arkansas versus Curtis Lavelle Vance. At 4.30 a.m. on October 20th, 2008, Ann Presley was found severely beaten and fighting for her life in her home in Little Rock. Ann, a morning anchor at KATV, had missed an early morning call with her mother, who was concerned, and went to her daughter's home. A month later, DNA evidence linked Curtis Lavelle Vance to Ann's murder 
and the rape of another woman that had occurred in April of 2008. We'll talk about the case against Vance, his trial and conviction, appeals, and post-conviction claims. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.